Welcome in, everybody. Episode 59 of Four Score the Podcast. Andrew May alongside Rob Jufray with you and a special guest with us once again, our good buddy Bruce Shine. We mentioned last week that Bruce is going to start being a regular contributor to the podcast, and we were going to have him on for a short segment uh, weekly. But we have so much stuff to discuss on tonight's episode that we figured, what the hell, you might as well join us for the whole damn thing. So, Bruce, welcome back again. How are you? Fellas, I'm honored as usual, and you know, especially on an occasion like like today, I've been feeling a little run down, not you know quite myself. And then today we got the news that an NFL immortal is returning in Tim Tebow, and it it just feels great to be alive again. <laughs> God, I'm psyched. Let's go. It's unreal. A load of garbage. Oh, oh my God. I don't understand. I mean, look, I don't think he's going to make the team, but just the fact that this guy is coming in once again to possibly take a spot on a team from a, some young kid, maybe. Now, when was I mean, the last time he appeared in the game? 2012. Yeah, yeah. 2012? he's 33 years old now. I mean, you tried baseball. Look, he was, he was a terrific and fun college player to watch. But he sucked in the NFL. I mean, in light of just that one big playoff win he had over the Steelers when he was with the Broncos. Uh, thank you for bringing and that up. And he sucked at baseball. Hey, Sorry, you know Andy. what? <laughs> you know what else? I think it leads to actually a more important issue here because he's got no chance of making the team. And this this is beyond laughable slash, you know, infuriating because I, I was T-boat out before the, the craze even began. But I'm beginning to question Urban Meyer's sanity. You know, this college rah-rah stuff, you know, first, you know, we touched on it last week with him revealing that he wanted the, the guy the Giants picked in the first round, Kadarius Tony, had he dropped it to him in 25 instead of Etienne. And now he does something like this, which is going to be mocked in every circle, but most importantly, in his own locker room with, you know, guys looking at him cross-eyed left and right for doing things like this. I mean, he hasn't even coached NFL game one yet. And I think there's a lot of people – within NFL circles, but more importantly, within that Jacksonville Jaguars situation, look at it, these two scenarios and, and kind of look at him a little sideways. It's the whole situation is bizarre to me. And what, what makes it more bizarre than anything is because Urban Meyer is coming from the college ranks, like you said, Bruce. And I feel like in college more so than the pros, it is so uber important to build a culture. And you'd think he'd be taking that mindset into the NFL and trying to build a culture. And what he's building is a circus. I mean, like you said, this is being mocked by everybody. They're not getting off on the right foot. They finally have some light at the end of the tunnel, getting Trevor Lawrence, the prospect who's been compared to John Elway and getting ETN and, and, and later on in that first round. It just looked like everything is coming together. And then you go out and sign a guy like Tim Tebow. You're creating a sideshow and taking attention away from the fact that the Jaguars roster is actually looking pretty promising. Yeah, well, you bring I mean, Tebow and, look, and, and, and you're and, sucking the life out of all of that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're going to sell extra jerseys and memorabilia because he's a godlike figure in that region but you know what you're the jacksonville jaguars you got bigger fish to fry you can't be bringing in a guy as you suggest he's gonna be 34 years old wasn't any good his first turn in the nfl oh and by the way he's making a position change they want him to play tight end for the first time in his life i mean this is it's just it's beyond absurd oh it is beyond absurd and and you know and you know when the mets had signed him as soon as they signed cespedes to a deal that looked like it was pretty much a uh, like almost like a hometown discount sort of deal when I signed Cespedes to that four-year contract. Everybody thought, wow, only four years. And then all of a sudden, a couple of days later, the announcement of Tim Tebow 
was signing with the Mets minor league organization. I said, hmm, something's up. And the first uh, thing I did was look at their agents and they had the same agent. So that was almost like a favor to the agent. Hey, listen, I'll give you this for four years. You guys are diehard Mets fans. You didn't have your heart set on, on Tebow being your starting right fielder uh, at the outset a, of 2022 with Mike Conforto bolts. And look, I'm if stunned. you want to, if you want to bring Tebow in because you want to maybe have some of these young kids around him just to maybe get a work ethic or something, then sign him as a coach or sign him as uh, some sort of a, an advisor or coordinator. Sign him to something. Don't he sign does. him to he's, he's going to play tight end. Yeah, exactly. He's an exemplary dude. He's a, right. you know, he's a good guy. He does right. all this wonderful philanthropic work, work but just go away already. Uh, it's almost like A-Rod. It's just it, it's, enough is, is too much. At least A-Rod was talented. He was a cheat, but at least he was talented. I, the, the, the Tebow stuff is, is just beyond worn out by now. Yeah, I got to say, yeah, and I got to say at this point, like you said before, like how he's a godlike figure. I mean, I, I think that aura is kind of worn off. I, I don't even think anybody cares about a guy anymore. They don't. Yeah, you're not, not even- there. Not there, Andrew. D- d- down in, in central North Florida where, you know, he became a hero well, yeah. from, from his college days. It's, it's, it's a little different down there. So I mean, yeah, marketing true. has an awful lot to do with this. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm more concerned about the, the mindset of the, uh, the new head coach there than I am with, with anything else right now. And we, we haven't even really begun getting started yet. Yeah. No. Yeah. So they, they got a ton of stuff to, to figure out down there in Jacksonville. And like I said, uh, Urban Meyer not getting off to on the right foot there. Uh, and that's kind of putting it lightly. So um, on that note, I mean, we got a ton of stuff to do tonight, which yeah. is part of the reason why we wanted Bruce on the whole entire time. We got a lot of baseball stuff to get into, not just with the local teams, some national stories as well. We'll get into NFL a little bit later, some Giants talk as well as some other storylines. And hey, there's a big New York Knicks game going on tonight at 1030. They're playing uh, in the Bay Area, taking on the, the Los Angeles Lakers. And if the Knicks win tonight, they essentially clinched themselves a playoff spot and not just the and a playoff spot. They solidify a spot where they might not have to play in that play in round and they can just have their have their cake and eat it. So. This is a situation that the Knicks have not been in for the longest time. It's a good reason for the fans to get excited. And they got a pretty good chance of winning tonight uh, because LeBron James is out for the Lakers. So we'll get into that a little bit later on. And we want to start off with the baseball. And that's kind of been the conversation that's been on a lot of people's minds, particularly with the New York Mets, uh, because of what went on this past weekend on Friday night in particular. Um, We don't exactly know the logistics of what happened. Uh, We can make an inference as to what we think happened. And that is that there is a slight kerfuffle in the dugout or in the tunnel between Francisco Lindor and Jeff McNeil. Uh, The cameras had shown players, uh, not just those two guys, but other players running down the tunnel as if to uh, break something up. I mean, the optics of it just made it seem as if there was some type of disagreement. And you saw Francisco Lindor, he hits a game-tying two-run homer, and he's not really smiling. And you could tell that there's some animosity that's lingering there. Uh, And then he does a post-game uh, interview with the media where they're asking questions about exactly what happened because everyone everyone knows what happened, but the reporters are just trying to pry and get the exact details, which they weren't going to get. And Francisco Lindor made up a story about how him and McNeil uh, thought they saw a rat in the tunnel and Dor thought it was a rat. McNeil thought it was a raccoon and they were having a debate around that. And I got to tell you guys, and I'm not sure how you guys feel on it. We haven't had a conversation off the air, but I said this on my Mets podcast. If there's anybody out there that has an issue with it, I think they're just being a baby. Honestly, find something else to turn your attention towards and get annoyed at. 
The whole point of Francisco Lindor making up that story, in my opinion, was not to insult anybody's intelligence. It wasn't to play the media for a bunch of fools. His intent was not to get anybody to buy into that story. You knew it was a load of BS as soon as he opened his mouth, but the intent was just to create a lightheartedness around the situation and take away attention from the fact that there was a disagreement. People get into disagreements and arguments all the time. Sometimes they turn violent. We don't know if it did in this case. For all we know, there were no punches thrown there. There were just words exchanged. For all we know, one of them could have grabbed the other by the neck and pinned them up against the wall. We don't know what happened. But it was clear that they were not going to disclose details. And so they made up a harmless, corny story. And people are running with it and acting as if they made they made an embarrassment of the organization. Uh, I think the embarrassment that's associated with the organization in this case is more along the lines of Zach Scott coming out and saying that it's not an ideal way of handling the situation. And then the very next day, the Mets putting rat and raccoon emojis on the scoreboard. That is showing that there's a disconnect between the promotional people within the ballpark operations and the front office. If you want to talk about that being an embarrassment, I'm all for it because because there's a disconnect there and that's a little embarrassing. But as far as the outrage with Lindor, he was not insulting anyone's intelligence here. He did not expect anybody to buy that story, but he was just making up the story so that everyone would calm down and just to show that, hey, they squashed it and everything is totally fine. Because you know what? At the end of the day, if he had come out and said, we're handling this internally and that's that. Well, guess what? You're opening yourself up from this point on for the rest of the season. Anytime there's an error made in the field or anytime there's any sort of miscommunication between the two of them, anytime you see both of them on camera and they're not smiling and happy-go-lucky, there's going to be headlines written. There's going to be stories written about what that relationship is like and if it's affecting the rest of the locker room. And you're going to open a Pandora's box of criticism behind their relationship. But by nipping it in the butt and making up that story as corny and as childish as you thought it was, it puts to bed the animosity between the two of those guys. And I think that was the intent there. So I have no, no problem with it. And, and quite frankly, I think anyone who does is being a baby. Well, I'm going to tell you something. I'm, I'm going to disagree with you 100% on this. The only thing I'm going to agree with you, and I heard your take, not only just now, obviously, but also on, on Mets Mayhem, which you're doing a terrific job on our podcast, by the way. Thank you. So if anybody's a diehard Mets fan, listen to it. Give it a listen. But I, I, I thought what he did there was – was I tell you the truth, it was embarrassing to me. I was watching that live when it was going on. And I'm saying to myself, what is he doing here right now? Why, why is he just not coming out saying, hey, there was a little bit of a disagreement in the, in the tunnel. There was a little shot in between we, me and Jeff. All is good now. And that's it. And you know what? It has no life now after that. There is zero life to it. Instead, instead of a game in which the Mets came back and made a terrific comeback, they're down 4 nothing to come back and win that game. Nobody even recognized that. Nobody even nobody even talked about it in the post-game conference. Everything was about a rat and a raccoon, and they kept going with this narrative here. And I'm saying, let's stop this already. This is silly. Just come out and say, yeah, me and Jeff had a disagreement, but you know what? I love him. He loves me, and it's kumbaya after this. It's no problem. You know, a couple of the guys overreacted when they heard us kind of yelling a little bit. Not a big deal. We're brothers. We're together 162 games. Little disagreements like this are going to happen. And it's over. It's over and done. Instead, the whole the whole narrative became a rat and a raccoon from that game. And the game was never spoken about. The media never asked a question about the game itself. It was a terrific comeback for the Mets being down 4 nothing, And and it became the raccoon and, and the, the rat story 
I mean, I, to me, I'm sorry. It was, a little, it was a little silly. I understand maybe he was trying to play games with it. But when you do that with the New York media, like I said last week, they're sharks. They're alligators, man. They're going to come circling the waters. They're not going to take that. When they know they're being fooled, they're not going to take that for an answer. They're not going to take it. And it just became, it went on and on and on. And again, media is to blame too. They should have just stopped it, walked it back and said, all right, let's talk about the game now and discuss what they needed to discuss about the rat and the raccoon tomorrow for another day. So that's my take on it. Brucey, I, I don't know what yours is, but I'd love to hear it. Well, yeah, Andrew, I got to respectfully disagree with you too. Uh, look, as the old saying goes, it's, it's not the crime, it's, it's the cover-up. Uh, on its own merits, you know, a little dispute, even if there were some fisticuffs in the tunnel, not that big a deal. But going with the story that they did, and I saw his post-game comments. I didn't see him live, but I heard him. Um, I saw a good degree of disingenuousy. That, if it wasn't a word before, it is now. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't – I. You don't try to pull a fast one on the New York media and the fan base. Don't play us for fools, okay? We like to believe we're a lot more sophisticated than everybody else. Maybe we are, maybe we aren't, but but that is that is the credo that that we go by. And I think he was legitimately trying to pull a fast one with those cringeworthy, and that's what they were. Those remarks and that story and the way he went about it uh, was cringeworthy. It was, I, I hate to bring up this guy's name again. It was very A-Rod like, um, now as good as he was in handling the whole scenario with his reaction, being booed at home a couple of weeks ago, this was a 180. This was the polar opposite of that. This was awful. It, it makes me wonder first and foremost, I mean, there are a lot of tentacles to this thing. Where is the Mets PR department with this? Okay. I'm not suggesting that, that they should have known that this kind of, ludicrous just absolutely absurd story was forthcoming but before Francisco Lindor meets the media here he has to basically be not you know told but you know Brief. kind of advised on yeah. listen you're going to be inundated with questions about what happened here and if you want to go with hey listen it's a personal matter we're keeping it within the family i'm not going to expound on it any more than that that's fine but at least you know cya cover your you know what before you you know let your star newcoming franchise player step in front of a, a bank of microphones or the zoom situation you know where we are now and make an absolute fool out of himself this couldn't have been handled any more atrociously than it was on the part of Lindor. I didn't like what he did the last night, hijacking the Jeff McNeil press conference and giving him a, a hug just to let everybody know, uh, hey, you know, look, we're all okay now. Just leave well enough alone. He's had a couple of days now to reflect on it. There hasn't been any, any commentary from him with regards to any regret involving that situation. That's not going to fly here. OK, and, you know, that this is not the way you want to get this relationship off. That's not the right foot uh, for which you want to be forging a relationship either with the media or the fans, because no one's buying it. And he's kind of already dug himself a little hole here. Now, of course, if he keeps hitting the way he has the last couple of days and the Mets keep winning, that's the ultimate deodorant. I'm not <laughs> suggesting the guy has buried himself 
in any way, shape, or form. But, you know, as I said, in the case of Urban Meyer with the Jacksonville Jaguars, I think there's a lot of people that otherwise were not at the time might now be looking at Francisco Lindor a little sideways. And let me tell you something. You know, there's one thing I'm going to say about Lindor and watching his, his post games prior to the whole rat raccoon post game. He, he's a very respectful kid. And what I like about him, what I like about him is he calls every reporter by their first name. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody's recognized yep, that. I know, I've noticed it from the very beginning. Every single reporter. And that to me shows a sign of respect. And, you know, and, and that's gonna, and that's why I think that he was not trying to pull a fast one on anybody. It's I not think, a matter of a fast one. He, he wasn't trying to do anything to try and make them look like dopes and fools. He actually made himself look like a fool more than anything, because, again, instead of just instead of just being honest. And as we always say here on this podcast, transparent, just come out and say, yes, there's a slight disagreement. Everything else is being kept in house. We're fine. Me and Jeff are fine. It happens over 162 game season. There's going to be disagreements. There's going to be little arguments. We're all good, and it's over and done, and now we could talk about the game. And my my point was, what happened to the game? A beautiful comeback coming back from 4 nothing, never got spoken about. Well, here's the thing. I think that you could disagree with the way he handled it. I think that you could say if you were in the same shoes, you would have chose to handle it a different way. And I think that's all fair. The way he handled it is not everyone's cup of tea. And like you said, Bruce, the story itself was cringeworthy, and I wouldn't disagree on that. But I, I, overall, I just think that the, the intent was to make it lighthearted so that they, he reassures everyone that everybody, every, everybody's okay, everything is okay, because he was smiling and he was laughing the whole time. And then, like you said, he barged into Jeff McNeil's press conference and gave him a hug. I really didn't see anything wrong with that either. I think he's probably just trying to reassure everyone that, hey, everyone's okay, because at the end of the day, yes, this rat and raccoon thing is probably dragged on a lot longer than he would have hoped, but He's also at the same time trying to put to bed any talk about there being animosity between two of the Mets' better players and a a double play combination where if there's no chemistry between those two, it could lead to all sorts of problems moving forward. But but given the tidal wave of negativity that has ensued, shouldn't Lindor by now have come out and reaffirmed that very conviction if indeed that was the case? See, I, I don't I don't think he was I don't think he was trying to make light of a serious situation. I think he was trying to convince the assembled media and the fans that that's exactly what that dispute was all about. And, and, and that was absolutely ridiculous. But I mean, listen, you guys are right. I know the same as you do. The, the kid's reputation is, is impeccable. He's a, he's a wonderful guy. He, he's got that magnetic energizing, uh, you know, personality, any team, you know, including the one I root for would love to have him as, as part of things. But in this town where we take things a little more literal than in other places, and we take our sports a little bit more seriously than they do in other places. I think he's got to watch his step with the kind of behavior that we, we witnessed the other night. Well, speaking of the team that you root for Bruce, we'll, we'll get into the Yankees who, there was a lot of concerns surrounding the Yankees to start the season. What were you going to get outside of Garrett Cole in that starting rotation? Because it seemed for the most part in the early portions of the season that this starting rotation was Garrett Cole followed by a band of four misfits. Uh, but now things to have seemed to have taken a turn for the better. 
Uh, you've now gotten three consecutive really good starts out of Domingo Herman. Corey Kluber has seemed to figure himself out. Is he vintage Cy Young caliber Corey Kluber? No, not by any stretch. And I don't think he'll ever reach that level again, but he's providing you with some quality innings. And you finally saw a good start out of Jamison Tyone. And the Yankees are winning games. I think your concern with the Yankees team right now has been their inability to score as many runs as you're accustomed to seeing. And that ultimately, I think, will turn itself around. Uh, they start a crucial three-game series with the Tampa Bay Rays tonight in Tropicana Field, which has been a house of horrors for the Yankees. And they are up one nothing as we speak Aaron Judge with a solo home run uh, they are getting Luke Voigt back tonight and they have gotten virtually no production out of first base whether it's Mike Ford whether it's Jay Bruce who was hitting so poorly he forced himself to retire I mean they're getting no production out of first base and you're taking Luke Voigt guy who led the entire league in home runs last season so I think that'll add an element to this offense to really get them going the one thing that stuck out to me and again it's not me being a nitpicky hater the one thing has really stood out to me is that I think that everyone could be in agreement no matter where you fell in the offseason. We can all agree now. Uh, Gary Sanchez is cooked, right? Uh, can we all agree that the guy just flat out stinks? Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't have any qualms with that. I, I mean, my two primary concerns outside the starting pitching that you just touched on was uh, the non-existent viability of the catching position and what am I going to get from my closer once October rolls around? I, I mean, just briefly, as far as the starting pitching is concerned, I, I got to see a little bit more. I, my thing wasn't as much about the ability as it is the durability. We all know what Corey Kluber and Jimison Tyone have been the last couple of years, and that's been ghosts, all right? They haven't pitched because of their injuries. Herman didn't pitch last year because of the suspension. So that's all fine and good that they're on a nice little run here the last week and a half, two weeks. But as they continue to theoretically take their turns once every five days, what are we going to see when that attrition sets in as this long season wears on? I think those, those concerns are still real. They're still prevalent. And uh, again, the jury is still very much out as far as the viability of their starting pitching going forward. I think we've seen some chinks in the armor with the bullpen because, you know, if, if for nothing else, how often they have been used in this early season, they got beat up pretty good in the last game of that Houston series, the first game of the national series. Listen, they've been so great. It's okay to have, you know, a couple of blips on the radar, but these guys have been used an awful lot. The starting pitchers are giving them a little bit more length, which is, so vital because they can't they you know when Cole doesn't pitch they're seemingly in that bullpen in the sixth inning every night and that simply cannot continue the especially when you're missing one of your main relievers in Britain right they'll get they'll get Britain back eventually and and that will be an enormous help and the Yankees will have options on the trade market this well but yeah clearly the the the, the surprise of the season has been how defunct their offense has been but I don't know, guys. I mean, look what's going on around the landscape right now. Nobody's scoring runs. Uh, the offensive numbers, uh, home runs aside, are way down. I read a couple of things that were startling. The first month of the season, there were for the month of April, there were more than 1,000 strikeouts than hits. That's only happened like two or three times in the history of baseball in any month, not, you know, not just April. All the relevant numbers, OPS, on-base percentage, batting average, way, way down to like 19, the late 1960s when, when, you know, the mound had to be moved down because the pitching was so dominant. 
I don't think it's just a Yankee thing. Again, this goes back to the root of a problem that we've you know talked on at length right now. There's just a not nearly enough offense in the game right now, and it's making the sport rather unappealing to watch. I'll be honest with you. I don't think it's so much about the pitching. I'll be honest with you. I think it's all analytics. I think and it's, it's all the these, approach. It's I think it's all the these the approach at home plate in the batter's box, the 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 launch angles, the exit velos, all this crap. Hey, you there's know, no, there's no you know more the most... pure hitters anymore. Where where were the George Bretts, the Rod Carews? Where's the Wade Boggs and you know guys like that? Where where are they? There's no longer these guys in in the game anymore. You know, you got all these these crazy shifts going on, which I I still the shift is a shift. All right, you could deal with that. But learn how to hit the ball the other way. I just, I just don't get it. I, I don't get it. I don't understand. You know, the, these teams would rather have their players strike out two hundred times and hit forty homers as opposed to hit three thirty and strike out, you know, sixty times. It's, it, it's just, and that's the reason. To me, I look at the pitching. Yeah, I mean, there's some good pitches out there, but there's a lot of watered down pitches. And then not only that. When you're getting into these bullpens, well, let's face it, we know three quarters of these bullpens suck, and you're getting into these bullpens by the fifth, sixth inning for the most part, and and you can't hit these guys either. It's a fundamental problem with the approach at the yeah, plate, Robbie, in my opinion. I, 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 I think your take on the bullpens, it's a little different now. I agree with you. You know that those great '90 Yankees teams. They, they live by getting into your bullpen and just pulverizing one mediocre reliever after another. The velocity of the sport right now with these pitchers, including the relievers, including the, the you know, one-time would-be scrubs of the middle innings, they're all throwing mid to high 90s, if not ch- touching triple digits. And given what Andrew touched on, given the added velocity – and then the launch angle approach where no one's trying to hit line drives. No one's trying to hit the all fields. Everybody's trying to constantly hit up on the ball because nobody has any belief that they're going to be able to string three or four hits together to score runs that we're only going to score on a home run. That right. has led to this malaise that we're well, stuck in right now. Bruce, the, the big issue to me, and it's actually like headache inducing, is if you look at the numbers – there is no correlation between the leaders in runs scored and the leaders in batting average. The leaders in batting average seem to be towards the bottom of the leaderboard and runs scored, which is telling to me because it means, yeah, they're getting a ton of runners on base, but once those runners are in scoring position, the approach totally changes and they're trying to hit a three-run homer because they're not confident, as you said, in getting that third or fourth consecutive hit and just passing the baton and moving the lineup further. I mean, we've been seeing it with the Mets who actually aren't even as analytical driven as some other teams in the league, but we see them consistently top five and six in batting average. And then with runners in scoring position, they're low twenties, if not in the thirties. And, and that's happening with a lot of teams in baseball right now. It's, it's not so much the approach to hit a home run at all times, but it's to try to cash in and get your maximum potential. Once those runners are on base opt for the three run Homer instead of the RBI single. And that is leading to so many, so many fruitless well, innings. With what happened to base. the hit and run? What happened to the hit and run? What happened to the stolen base? Uh, they're woolly mammoths at this point. Uh, what happened to that? I, I, I don't know. I never, I, I still can't understand that. Those tenets are taboo in the, it's, analy- it's all analytics era. Driven. That's the problem. So, Rob, yes, Rob, here's taboo. a question for you. How many times, and you watch every Met game, just like I do. How many times, have you been watching a Met game this season and thought in your head, this is a perfect time for a hit and run? It's, you know what? I, I always I, say I've seen it like 25 times and, it, and they never do it. But especially when a guy's struggling at the plate, 
like when McNeil was struggling at the plate, when Conforto was struggling at the plate, whoever it may be, I always say, put a hit and run on, you know, just put a hit and run on. See if a guy can just, you know, just get his bat on the ball, stay back on the ball and try and just slash it the other way. And you don't see it. I don't think I've seen any baseball game I've watched this year. I don't think I've seen one hit and run. Not once. See, you guys, I don't even see stolen bases anymore. And, and I don't disagree. But what we're obviously talking about here is strategy. I think baseball are looking into greater tangible impactfulness here uh, at, at what their recourses are to to turning around what is, uh, you know, let's face it, let's not sugarcoat it. It's, it's a dire situation. Now, you know, listen, we could go, you know, back and forth of, of all the things that they're throwing out there. We, we, we disagree with most of them, but at least they're trying. I guess the most disturbing of which is moving the pitcher pitching rubber back. But uh, I think some of the other things have some merit. Don't ban the shift, but put all these guys on the infield. Don't let the second baseman play in short right field. Maybe you do reduce the number of pitchers you're allowed to have on your pitching staff. Let's put more of an emphasis back on starting pitching. Let's make it so they have to go through a lineup more than, you know, more than twice. It, it, it not only does it have that kind of tangible effect, but in terms of the entertainment value, you know, Robbie, when you and I were growing up, when we were looking, you know, looking in the newspapers, when newspapers actually mattered at the time, and we were looking at the, at, at the schedule ahead, what were the things we've looked at first and foremost? What are the pitching matchups? Pitching Who matchups, were the yeah. starters tonight? We're, we're losing all that. And baseball can't afford to lose that kind of marquee value right now. They just can't, we got to get back to that. So some of these things they're discussing before we just arbitrarily poo-poo everything, let's take a closer examination of exactly what they're contemplating and, you know, Give it a try in the minor league level, in the independent ball league level. Let's see what it looks like. That's why they're doing it. I applaud baseball for trying, and I actually think some of these things hold some some serious merit. So, so you're thinking about you know them pushing the mound back? Then I mean, I'm not keen on that. I, I just listen. I know baseball is too tied into their record books more than the other sports, comparatively speaking. But, you know, once you start doing that, then we kind of have to look, you know, when we compare and contrast, we, we kind of have to look at, you know, what pitchers now versus then at a starkly different prism. I'm not sure we need to do that just yet. I don't think we need to do anything with the rubber. I don't think we need to do anything with the mound. I, again, I think some of the things that they're talking about I think I like the compromise that they're discussing with regards to the shift, not banning the shift, but making sure all four of your infielders are on the infield dirt. You know, maybe you, you, you penalize a team that removes a starting pitcher by, you know, saying, well, you don't have a DH anymore. All right. Maybe that's a little too crazy, but maybe, you know what, maybe we do shorten the length of, uh, of pitchers you're allowed on your roster. So you, you know, so these teams are forced to stay with their starters a little longer. I, I think there's some merit to, to, to some of these things. I hope some of them come to fruition because the one thing we can all agree on, baseball is not a pretty watch right now. They're losing eyeballs. Uh, yeah, some of the ratings, nationally speaking, are actually up. The younger kids are actually playing the game in, in larger numbers, and that's all positive. But you, the three of us live, eat, and breathe baseball, 
And in our heart of hearts, we know on a lot more occasions than not, it's a tough, tough view. It's just well, well when it comes to the generation nowadays, it, baseball is in a weird spot. They're behind the eight ball as it is just because of the nature of the sport. So, for instance, let's talk about basketball, right? You're watching the end of a Lakers game. It's crunch time. It's a tie game with 30 seconds left. Well, guess what? You're guaranteed that LeBron James is going to have the ball in his hand on the last possession. When it comes to baseball, you're watching a Nationals game. It's a tie game in the ninth inning. You're not guaranteed that Trey Turner or Juan Soto is going to get up to the plate. So from a marketability and exposure of the best player standpoint, baseball is behind the eight ball. And that's why I think it's even more imperative of them to come up with creative ways as to how to speed the game up and how to make it an easier watch. Because we're seeing now the, the, the percentage of balls that are the percentage of plays that end without a ball being put in play is astronomical. And that's not even taking into account walks and hit by pitches. You factor those into the equation. And all of a sudden you're looking at upwards of 50% of the plays throughout a game results in a ball not being put in play. I mean, Bruce, I'm a diehard Mets fan. I eat, breathe, live, sleep Mets. I watched a three and a half hour Mets game last Thursday against the St. Louis Cardinals. And I was miserable the whole entire time because the Cardinals walked 11 batters the Mets walked three there were two errors uh two errors from the Mets one error by the Cardinals uh, 12 strikeouts per team it, it was it was embarrassing to watch it ended in a win and I was happy with that but as far as the the imagery of the game it's not enjoyable and that is coming from a diehard fan like myself but how how are you how are you how do you expect to shorten a game when you're basically both teams combined are using eight nine pitches a game there's a myriad of pitching changes. It's it's very difficult to shorten the game when when by five and a third the start is out and here we go. Here comes the bullpen game between both teams. Both teams, you cannot shorten the game. And then we're trying to make all these different rule changes around the fact that there's not enough offense. It all starts at home plate. In my opinion, it all starts at home plate. You have no more pure hitters anymore. You have guys that are just going up there, worried about the launch angle. It's all about the launch angle, launch angle. Nobody just trying to be a pure hitter anymore. anymore. Nobody's selling for 12 to 15 double uh, uh, home runs, 35, 40 doubles, hitting 310. Nobody's settling for that. They don't mind if they hit 240, but as long as they hit 40 homers, all is good. And, and guys, to me, you're trying to make all these changes around the fact that the one change that needs to be made is all these dopey analytics with launch angles and exit velos and all this other crap we got to hear about. It starts at at in the batter's box, in my opinion. Well, listen, you know, with regards to the analytics, you know, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. The analytics work. It, it's a tough thing to come to, to grips with because the the teams themselves that are that are employing these analytics. It is helping them indisputably win games, but they're not in the business to entertain us. They're in the business of winning and they are undoubtedly accomplishing that. Then the ones that are successfully, you know, employing the analytics, obviously tied in with the requisite talent they have on their, on their roster. And, and that's what Theo Eckstein was talking about during his, you know, exit press conference with the, with the Cubs. I'm guilty of this, okay? I bought into this. I, you know, hook, line, and sinker. I embrace the analytics, and they helped me win a couple of championships in Boston and, and one in Chicago. But the game is just impossible to watch right now. And the other thing that you have to come to terms with, and, you know, Russo and I talked a lot about this primarily off the air, not on the air, 
when we were doing high heat, the game itself, you know, you know you're re- trying to reinvent the wheel here. It is a timeless game. There isn't a clock. It is meant to be played at a very deliberate pace. And we're in an era right now where we demand, maybe not our generation, Robbie, but, you know, Andrew and the, and the younger kids, the immediate gratification is, is demanded. The, the constant action is, is absolutely a bare minimum. And if not, you know what? I'm going to flip around the control and find something else. It, it, you know, well, not, not necessarily another baseball game. I'll go turn on an NBA game. I'll go turn on. I'll go binge watch something on Netflix. You know, baseball has to fight that too. The nature of its game just doesn't allow for the continued, ex- continual excitement that we see in the other sports. Well, I think you just pinpointed the root of the problem and why it's so difficult to solve. Because you have fans who might not be diehard baseball fans. They're looking for action. Well, baseball is not going to provide you with that because, like you said, it is meant by nature to be played at a deliberate pace. However, for that casual fan, they're saying to themselves, I'm okay with the game being played at a deliberate pace. But when the action is actually taking place, you need to guarantee me that there's going to be action. And we're not being guaranteed that anymore because of all the strikeouts and all the walks. And the analytics play such a heavy role in these front offices. And as far as winning is concerned, that is the gateway to winning in these front offices' minds. They're not in the entertainment business. They're in the winning business. And so they're not going to deviate from that. So then that's why it kind of seems as an it seems like an unfixable problem. And I think that leads to why the major leagues is trying to tinker with all these rule changes that may seem corny to baseball lifers such as us three, albeit I'm much younger, but I'm a purist in every sense of the word when it comes to baseball. That is why they're trying to experiment with all these changes because at its root, it seems like an unfixable issue. But to fix it, it's going to require a lot of flexibility in our thinking. And no other sport has been more inflexible than the stewards and and to a degree – uh, old school fans like like me and, and, and Rob than baseball. Um, but baseball's in a bind right now with regards to how the game's being played. And, you know, as the old saying goes, drastic times call for drastic measures. And there might have to be some radical implementations put in place to kind of get this game on the right track to attractiveness amongst the masses. Yeah. All right. Well, you know what? Let's move on now because we have a couple of teams, you know, we, it looks like the Yankees and Braves are coming back to, you know, to what they, what, what we figured they'd be doing this season. And that's winning. Uh, Both teams got off to a bad start, but you know what, Bruce, you had the Dodgers and twins out there. You know, I'm not that shocked by the twins right now because I, I don't know, sometimes they do it with smoke and mirrors, that team, in my opinion. So they, they're always on the cusp. They could be a 90-win team. They could be a 70-win team as far as I'm concerned, the Twins. Uh, but you look at the Dodgers now, and they look like they're having all sorts of problems. They just lost Dustin May. They've lost Bellinger for a couple of weeks now, and they look like they're having some problems here, the Dodgers. And Trevor Bauer was none too happy about it because, you know, he went there to go win, Bruce. So, you know, I don't know. <laughs> and now the Padres have just lost Tatis themselves now, so he's out for a couple of weeks with the covid so they've lost him now, but 
Uh, you expect the Dodgers to write the ship? I mean, I do. I, I do. I don't think Dustin May is going to be the, the, the difference between them winning 100 games and not winning 100 games. He's a hell of a young arm, but again, they have, they have so much depth on that team right now that I think they're just in a little bit of a funk, which could happen after you win a World Series. But I think the Dodgers is still destined to win their 100 games and win that well, a, uh, I, I, NL West. Excuse me for laughing, but yes, Trevor Bauer did go there to win. $40 million per year also did. Yeah, well, Trevor, yeah, but, of course. But yeah, he went to the window, Bruce. <laughs> but, you know what? I think I think depth has become somewhat of a problem, you know, all of a sudden, because they have had an inordinate amount of injuries, particularly in that bullpen, but also amongst their, their everyday regulars, you know, guys that we – kind of took for granted with them because of all the immense star power but you know what it wouldn't hurt to have a jock peterson right now would it it wouldn't hurt to have a kike hernandez right now would it and you know all of a sudden this franchise that could could easily throw out its second team you know is that could be the quality easily of uh, of a first string team amongst most other major league franchises well, you know what? The Dodgers don't necessarily have that going for them right now. They've lost whatever it is, 15 of 20. I mentioned the the uh, the injuries to the bullpen, the ineffectiveness uh, of the bullpen. They've lost a lot of one-run games. So, yes, you know, you could kind of look at an inordinate amount of one-run games. So there is some, some bad luck you could factor into this as well. I think it's too early to say it's a World Series hangover. I mean, they did come out of the gates 13. No, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a hangover. I think it's just something that they're just going through a little bit of a funk early in the season. Well, I, eight, uh, eight of these last 15 losses have been in one run games, too, yes. which you can attribute to being somewhat fluky. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. I, I think that I think that's part of this uh, as well. Obviously, you know what? They're going to get everybody's A game. They're the world champion, you know, the Los Angeles Dodgers right now. So, you know, uh, uneasy is the the head that that wears the crown. Uh, but I do agree, as as we know, boys. You know, the baseball season is is unrelenting. It is it it, it will it will spew out the best of the best. Uh, at the end of the day, the cream will rise to the top. So again, yes, it's it's very easy to kind of you know kick dirt on the Dodgers, you know where they are right now, a couple of games over 500, third place in their division. But before all is said and done, they'll be uh, you know on top. And if they're still in this rut for whatever reason, a couple of months from now, you know they have an uber aggressive head of operations there, and Andrew Friedman that will go out and get whatever this team is lacking, if indeed they are lacking come late July. Well, that's going to, that's going to lead me into this next question for both you guys. Who wins the Max Scherzer sweepstakes? Because you know, he's going to get dealt. I don't know about that. You don't uh, think so? You know, until you show me a reason where someone in that NL East is going to run and hide. I'm not so sure about that. I know that they're, you know, they're in last place. They're, you know. Okay. So, so let's pose the question this way. If the nationals deem themselves not to be any sort of contenders, where does Max Scherzer go to? Uh, I, I I think you look at the usual suspects, don't you? Dodgers, Yankees, the Red Sox are still hanging in there. I mean, those those I those I, I think time and again. I think the St. Louis Cardinals would be a perfect fit for him. I I'm in love with that Cardinals bullpen. They Reyes and Hicks and Gallegos and Cabrera 
Yeah, they got one right after the other. They got a bunch of fire, fire flamethrowers in that bullpen. But that starting rotation is not going to hold up. Jack Flaherty struggled out of the gate. It seemed to turn it around a little bit. But I mean, after that, you got 38 year old Adam Wainwright, uh, Carlos Martinez, who is a meddling starter at best. John Gant, who's averaging 7.5 walks per nine innings. Uh, That starting rotation is not going to win you a series in October. So they could be in the mix for those sweepstakes as well. Yeah, I think they got to put Gant actually back in the bullpen because Hicks is having problems with that elbow again and coming off the recent Tommy John surgery. Yeah, he's you been on wonder, the IL. Even if he does, you know, return, how effective he's going to be. That's a great the point, though. Obviously, sure so is from uh, the St. Louis area, so it, it fits as far as that's concerned as well. But yeah, you could, you know, any would-be contender is is going to line up to bring in, you know, a Max Scherzer. You know, again, you know, we're kind of a New York centric uh, podcast here. The thing when you talk about a team like the Yankees is how Steinbrenner going to be willing to uh, forego the the luxury tax implications and 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 make a play for a guy like that if indeed he's available, which I'm still pretty skeptical about. I tell you, one team in the major leagues that has really jumped out as the biggest surprise and. Yeah, I would ask you guys the same question, but I think we could probably be in all in agreement as far as who we think is the biggest surprise as far as teams that have enjoyed success early on. And you look at the team that's currently leading in the NL West right now, and that's the San Francisco Giants. They win again today against the Texas Rangers, uh, 23 and 14 now on the season. And you just take a gander at their starting lineup and they're not getting any production from Mike Yastrzemski, who I think is a budding superstar. Uh, you barely have any guys in that lineup that are hitting over the 240 mark. They're not producing a lot of runs, but that no, pitching staff, Posey. Posey's the only guy. Posey is the only one who seems to, to have discovered the, the, the fountain of youth. But you look at that starting rotation, and they have, they have put a patchwork rotation together of a bunch of journeymen, and every single one of them is having a career year. I mean, Kevin Galsman pitching to a sub-two earn run average. Galsman has always been a pretty decent starter. He's never been a bona fide ace, in my opinion. Anthony DiSclafani has been tremendous. Aaron Sanchez has been tremendous. Alex, Alex Wood, 4-0 with a 1.8 ERA. I mean, that's another the, team the that seems to be is, doing is it with that, smoke and that, mirrors. Is that sustainable, though? Is that sustainable? Because when you look at their bullpen, when you look at their starting staff, is that sustainable? These are guys that have never had any sort of – I mean, look, Alex Wood, you know, is destined for an injury. <laughs> I mean, it's like that every single year. Gaussman's been good the last couple of years, but Di Scafani's been just – I mean, you know, look, he's been a mediocre pitcher up until up until this season. I mean, Johnny Cueto's another guy. He's having – you know, so far he's having a pretty good year for himself. But is that sustainable? Is it sustainable to, to be seven games over 500 and you only have one guy – Basically, in your lineup, I mean, Posey's hitting 385 right now. Everybody else, it's 229, 228, 217, 230, 213, 235. Is that sustainable? Well, it's no. not sustainable to win that way, but you have to figure that while the pitching reverts to the mean, the offense will do the same and start producing more than it has because I don't think that that lineup is as bad as it's been. Like I said, I think I think Yastrzemski is one of the best young players in the game who doesn't get the recognition he deserves. He's not a 219 hitter. He's going to come around. I mean, they're getting solid contributions out of Evan Longoria right now, but you know, guys like Yastrzemski, guys like Brandon Belt, Alex Dickerson, who I think is another really good uh, left-handed bat, he's not hitting right now. Uh, and he's had some injuries, too, along the way. So I think those guys will start producing. And you just hope that the bats start producing before the pitching starts to falter. Because I don't think over the course of 32 starts, if all five of those guys stay healthy, 32 starts apiece, 
that they're going to continue to put up the numbers that they've been putting up. Look, guys, you're not going to pull the wool over Farhan Zaidi's eyes. He knows what he has there. He knows what this year is all about. He That organization is far better served for, as you just said, Alex Wood, Kevin Gaussman, Di Sclafani, Johnny Quaid, who just came off the IL, got bombed yesterday, but it, it was his first uh, you know, it's his first time out on the mound. I'm not making too big a deal out of that, about that. Let them continue to pitch well, spin them for future commodities at the trade deadline. Let the onerous contracts of Belt and Crawford and Posey. Longoria still has another year left on his contract, but all the guys I just mentioned are in the last years of their deals. Let them all expire. It's never been about 2020 for the Giants. They've been a nice early se- season surprise but it's all about 2022 and beyond and again given where they are in the standings if they're there two months from now it's going to be a tougher sell for for Zaidi but I think he realizes what he's up against with two behemoths and the Padres and Dodgers in that division play this out for what it's worth and then spin some of these guys who are having uh, their respective renaissances and get what you can at the trade deadline for a better tomorrow. And I tell you, you know who's quietly tucked into first place here after suffering some injuries to their lineup? Two young superstars in Eloy Jimenez and, and Luis Robert is the is the Tony LaRusso led White Sox at 19 and 13, sitting in first place. And you talk about a pitching staff. You look at that pitching right now with Keiko, Giolito, Rodon, Lance Lynn, Kopich. I mean, I tell you what, they're all contributing and they're all pitching terrifically. And who you know, needs, who really needs Eloy much Jimenez of, and Luis Robert when you have your mean Mercedes? I know, out of nowhere. Hitting 373, yeah. Out of nowhere. And Jose Abreu, Abreu not even doing anything so far. Yeah, yeah they your may need Mercedes to go out there out and, and get a Madri- bat. Madrigal, too. And, you know, another kid. Yeah, Madrigal, yeah. Well, yeah. he, you know, he's a guy after your own heart and mine, too, Robbie. Uh, the, the guy never strikes out. He's got the lowest no. strikeout percentage. Him and McNeil are like neck and neck. In, in that regard, puts the ball in play, hits Just for, puts for it in high play. average. Yeah, he's the antithesis of everything else you're seeing in the game right now. And, you know, Tony La Russa might not know the rule book, but he knows about winning because, as you said, he's got himself a, a first-place team there in what's still a, a rather a lacking division. But, yeah, the White Sox are – they kind of are they've – gone, they've gone about it in a, in a roundabout kind of way, but they – they kind of are who we thought they were coming in. You know, they're if they're not the most talented team in the American League, a watered-down American League, they are certainly, uh, you know, amongst the top two or three. And, and you know, I want to go back to the NL East because I know that's a division that is near and dear to all our hearts, especially you guys being Met fans. I'm beginning to have some concerns about the Braves and, and what they're going to be for the balance of this year, because it seems like with their play on the field and their injured list, it's kind of one step forward and two steps back. I mean, Freed is back now off the IL, but he wasn't very good, you know, before getting injured. Soroka had a little bit of a setback. I mean, he's not going to be back for the foreseeable future. They're not hitting. They're not exactly tearing the cover off the baseball. Now they rebounded very nicely in those last two games against the Phillies in that series. And that might still be more about what the Phillies are lacking than the Braves themselves. But I I wonder here if there is an opportunity 
for the Mets who have who are on a nice little run right now, not only can they create some distance for themselves in that division, but should they making it impossible for the Braves if and when they do get their their pieces back that they almost become too difficult to catch that the Mets might have a golden opportunity right now to create some, uh, to create some space here in this division. Yeah. Well, you know what the problem with the Mets too is they've had some injuries here now also, especially in this, especially in their starting staff. And now you got Carrasco was put onto the 60 day deal, which means he's not going to be ready until the end of May, because as the Mets said, he didn't suffer a setback, but they didn't feel like he needed to be where he needed to be by mid May. Uh, you know, Syndergaard, probably mid-June. We're looking at Lugo, probably another maybe 10, 10 days maybe for Lugo to come in and solidify the bullpen. Their lineup's been, their lineup's been okay, actually. They, they've, they survived the injuries to Nimmo, to, uh, to J.D. Davis. Uh, Guillaume hasn't been playing either. He's been on the I.L. So they have had some injuries here, but they are still pitching. They're, listen, they're, they're getting some good contributions from their bullpen. Their bullpen has been lights out. Listen, I think they're getting, you know, Carrasco, I think, was more of a clerical thing. As you said, they put him on the 60-day, so that enables them to add somebody else to the roster. So even if they want to send them out on a rehab assignment next week, it doesn't count against that. They're going to get him in June. They're going to get Syndergaard in June. They're going to get Lugo in June. Stop and think about that, fellas. These are three huge pieces. And I'm also obviously assuming – Let's not uh, ignore the elephant in the room, the Jacob deGrom situation. But from by all accounts, that, that's a rather minor, you know, injury scenario that he's dealing with. That is a lot of artillery that the Mets are going to have walking through that clubhouse door in short order. And it looks like Jeff McNeil's hurt now. Yeah. Look, he just pulled up lame just going, uh, up trying lame. to stretch out a double. Yep. Yep. So he's, it looks like he's going to be coming out of the game. And there's another injury added. Yeah. <laughs> the mix. Yeah. Perfect timing, Bruce. <laughs> yeah. Maybe call me mush. Maybe he got <laughs> bit by, maybe he got bit by a raccoon. <laughs> well, I thought it was a rat. Yeah. It was a, po- <laughs> it was a possum. All right. So look, we covered enough baseball. Let's, let's get into some of the football here. And, you know, we got an interesting situation here brewing still with Mr. Aaron Rodgers. And I, you know, look, I, I was of the ilk that, there's no way they trade him in the NFC. Uh, you know, we do know that the Giants Eagles have some draft capital going into next year, especially the Giants. Uh, I just don't see Rodgers being traded within the conference. If anything, I do see Rodgers maybe going to the Broncos. If the Broncos will give up players along with draft capital, because I don't think the Broncos have enough of draft capital to suffice the Packers here. So it's going to take some top-notch players. It might take Patrick Sertan. It might take Jerry Judy. It might take two or three players here, along with a couple of pieces as far as draft picks are concerned, in order to maybe complete this deal with the Packers if it does go to fruition. But you're hearing now that the Packers are supposedly made an aggressive offer to sign Aaron Rodgers. But Bruce and Andrew, can Aaron Rodgers walk this back now after what he said and what he in the way he's acted over these past couple of weeks, especially with the fact that he insisted on the GM being fired? Can this get walked back in any way? Well, I think the interesting thing that you just pointed out is what he said. Actually, the silence has been deafening because we have yet to hear from Aaron Rodgers since the, the now infamous Adam Schefter report on draft day about his insistence that he's played his final game as a Green Bay Packer. Listen, 
I'm sticking by my guns. I don't think Aaron Rodgers is going anywhere for the 2020 season. I don't see how a team that is this close to being a, a championship squad is dealing one of the top two or three quarterbacks in the sport, an iconic figure for the franchise. Those th- That scenario just doesn't seem viable to me. I, again, I, I'm not walking in Aaron Rodgers' shoes. I don't understand how things have come to this. I don't understand why he is allegedly as angry as he is. Uh, listen, they drafted, they traded up to draft his successor last year. Is that something that I'd be upset about? Sure. Am I upset that sometimes my wife doesn't put the cap back on the toothpaste? Yeah, I am. But you know what? I don't wake up the next day asking for a divorce because of it. Uh, Again, I don't – could the Packers have handled things differently by, you know, giving him a heads up that they were going to do this? Sure, they could have handled it a little differently. But nothing in in accordance to what we've been led to believe forces me to believe – that he should be insistent on leaving the only professional home he's ever had where he has put together a brilliant career where he's experienced championship glory. These two things just don't coincide. The alleged impropriety here to me doesn't suggest that if I'm Aaron Rodgers, oh my God, this is a slap in the face. This is so disrespectful. I want out of here. I'm sorry. I don't buy it. And if that's the case, I can't side with Rodgers in any way, shape, or form. I think this is all ridiculous. Yeah, it's Real funny how ridiculous. the perce- it's funny how the perception works because when Deshaun Watson comes out and requests a trade, now this is coming before the allegations of sexual misconduct came out, but when he first came out with his request out of Houston, you know, some people, including myself, were clamoring for some of these general managers to put their foot down and say, "Hey, you're under contract. You're playing." Uh, but now the perception has kind of changed as far as the general public is concerned because of the fact that it's Aaron Rodgers and he's a guy who's accumulated so much hardware throughout his career. Uh, and it's just funny to me, the GM of the Packers, the owner, they can do the same thing to Aaron Rodgers and say, hey, you're under contract. You're going to play. And if you're not going to show up, then we don't have to pay you. If you want to go host Jeopardy, if you get that gig, go ahead and do it. But we are not going to reward another team because of something that you asked for. Yeah, so I can't, they can play uh, hardball back with them. If you're the Packers, you can't do that. If he's not going to play for you and, and you really believe that's going to be the case, I, I, I'm all for the, the Packers saying, listen, we've been around here for a hundred years. This is how we've done things. I'm putting my foot down. I'm standing my ground. I respect all that. But given what you're going to be turning away with regards to a return that you could get for a guy who refuses to play for you anyway. I can't do that. Well, for all, from all accounts, we heard that Deshaun Watson was going to do the same thing and he was not going to, going to show up. So, you know, but you could play hardball with Watson, but you can't play hardball with Rogers. Listen, I know that Rogers is an eccentric guy and is it completely outside the realm of possibility that he walks away from the game and pursues another opportunity? I don't think it is. But you can't just give in for that fear because if, if the Texans were in a position to play hardball with Watson and force his hand, I think that Green Bay could do the same thing. I know that Rodgers is an eccentric cat. He's not like the rest of these quarterbacks. But at the end of the day, 
that competitive fire is burning hard inside of him. And if it wasn't, he wouldn't be so, uh, he wouldn't be so angry with what's transpired in Green Bay if it wasn't for his competitiveness. So I would find it super hard to believe that he would walk away from the sport that easily. I do. Well, you know, let's look. Has the Packers won a Super Bowl in the last couple of years? No, that I didn't know about. I mean, have they been to a Super Bowl in the last couple of years? And not only that, you're getting MVP type seasons from Aaron Rodgers over the last two, three, four years, whatever it may be. And and you're still not you're still not even getting to the big show. You're not even getting there. So, look, if if you're going to make the move, now's the time to make the move because Rodgers still has another three good years left in him. And in my opinion, I think that's what the Packers should do at this point because I don't think there's any walking back to comments that Rodgers made over the last couple of weeks. If they didn't have a championship caliber roster around them, I'd agree with you, Rob. But the fact of the matter is there is nothing that the Packers are going to do with regards to the exchange rate that is going to make them a more viable championship contender than they are when Aaron Rodgers is under center form. And and it's not necessarily imperative for him to walk it back. If you're hearing reports now that the front office is still trying to bend over backwards, offering him long-term contracts to try to get this thing resolved. It's kind of becoming clear that he doesn't even need to walk it back. They're still trying to work things out because keeping him is their top priority in the moment. Well, let's face it. There was a game in Milwaukee last week where they played an ad on the video board for an Aaron Rodgers State Farm commercial, and Aaron Rodgers got booed. Aaron Rodgers got booed. Yeah, but again, again, I I think that you take any fan reaction with a grain of salt nowadays because the the fans that are at the stadium are not really indicative of what the whole fan base feels. I think that fan base has had enough because you know what? Aaron Rodgers has been bitching and moaning now for a couple of years, and he has not taken him to the promised land. And you could say what you want. All right, maybe he doesn't have a, a full roster around him, but he's got a good enough roster. He's, he's got a good enough roster. And Aaron Rodgers also did not play well in a couple of these big games over the last couple of years. He just didn't. He did not play well. And you know what? The fan base is starting to see that and saying, okay, we got a young guy behind him. Let's let, let's let's move on from this now. I it, can assure it, you that there is not one person that's saying that. I don't that, know. That's just off base. There is not one person in that. their right mind who would be saying, I've had enough of Aaron Rodgers' shtick. Let's go to Jordan Love but with the current I'm, roster. I don't think just, anyone's saying it's that. It's not even just saying go to Jordan Love, but look, at this point right now, let's see if we can get a boatload and we can get a haul from him right now. Let's do it because it's obvious that, look, he's won one Super Bowl while he was there. One. He's won one. And you, anybody which is, which is their, still their more than uh, 26 had, of the starting quarterbacks in this league. I understand that, but they've had top. We're talking Aaron Rodgers. He's supposed to be the elite, the elite of the elite. You're putting him, people put him in the same sentence as Tom Brady, which is ridiculous. But as you know, it, it's still Aaron Rodgers. And they've still had, they've had championship defenses on that field. They've had an all world wide receiver and whether it be Devontae Adams or whether it was Jordy Nelson or whether you had uh, uh, the running backs, you have Aaron Jones. They've had pieces. They've had top-notch offensive lines. But what do you do with a roster that is win-now ready? Are you suggesting that you would be all for Derek Carr and two or three number ones from the Raiders in exchange for, for uh, you know, for, for Rodgers and let's go? Look, are we – First of all, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say Derek Carr. I don't think he'd go. I don't know. Well, listen, he possibly could go to the Raiders. I don't know if they'd want Derek Carr back because at this point, again, you're almost locked into Jordan Love. When you made that trade to move up, 
two years ago to, to grab Jordan Love in, in that, instead of getting other pieces to help out your roster to try and win a Super Bowl, they went out and got Aaron Rodgers backup in that first round. You're almost locked into Jordan Love to a certain degree because after next season, after this season, they have to they have to determine whether or not they're going to they're going to offer him that fifth year, that fifth year deal on his but rookie by, deal. Jordan by, Love. by all accounts, and, and and Andrew touched on this, this kid doesn't know which way is is up right now. He's just not ready, and that you're going to exacerbate. How do we, how do we know that? How do we know him, that? Do we know that? Well, according to the general manager, I believe this was his quote, but I'll paraphrase. He's got a long ways to go. Oh, well, yeah, he could say that all he wants, but you know, look, give the kid, give the kid first team reps. Give him first team reps. How do we know? We don't know that the kid's been in the league two years. So you, so in other words, what they're trying to say then is, well, we drafted a kid in the first round to move up, but we don't think he's going to be ready for at least four years. And I look, I get it. They didn't, the they didn't know that when they selected him, but here I, we are I, two years into that timeline and they might be seeing what he's doing in practice and saying, okay, he's probably he's not, not doing progressing. Much, Andrew. It's he's Aaron not progressing as much. It's Aaron Rodgers ball. He ain't oh, doing but no, but come on. You got to remember, right? Jordan Love is practicing with the first team three days a week. Aaron Rodgers is getting veteran days off. He's getting plenty of reps for him to show what he's got. It's in not practice. the same. I don't know. I look until I see this kid play. I'm not going to say that this kid's not ready, especially if he's going into his third year. But that's what that's where that that's where the problem lies is because if you haven't seen him play, if that's the argument that you haven't seen him play, give him a chance. Then I'm not going to be super willing to just part ways with Aaron Rodgers to put in a kid that I've never seen play. You're not parting ways and getting nothing for him. You're, you're going to be getting a hole. But if you don't have a quarterback in this league, you don't have anything. And you have a quarterback I, on your roster right now that's coming off an MVP award. I don't care that he's only won I, one I ring in his tenure that. with the Packers. He's one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever touch the field. I get it. But over the next two years, if they don't win another Super Bowl, what are you doing with him? What are you doing? Oh, well, he, we had a great quarterback. He was great, but we still didn't win a Super Bowl. I, this team, this team, if they didn't win a Super Bowl last year or the year before that, I don't think they went in a Super Bowl this year either. So is, are the Dolphins' the entire Dan Marino error? just gets forgotten about and thrown in the trash as a failure because they didn't win a Super Bowl? Uh, look, it, it, it's, a, it's a little different here. It's a little different. I don't think Marino's roster Yeah, it's, was, it's different because the Packers actually good. got one and the Dolphins didn't. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't quite as good as what the Packers have had over the last couple the of years. The Packers have a championship roster. There's they no doubt. Can't, they can't trust it to Jordan Love. They will not trust it to Jordan Love. Then you know what? Then then the GM should be fired for, for making that trade to move up to take Jordan well, Love if I they gotta, can't trust that know, kid. The funny thing here is, boys, and this goes back to why, you know, it's ridiculous that you know, Aaron Rodgers is taking umbrage with how the Packers are doing things here. Though this is the one organization that has showed you we could draft a quarterback in the first round, have him sit for a handful of years, and just keep on keeping on. So the fact that Jordan Love is not ready to go in, in, in year two of his apprenticeship is not exactly a crime against the sport, especially in a place like Green Bay, where one of the greatest quarterbacks to have ever played the game, their second consecutive first ballot Hall of Famer, he himself had to sit three years before he got a real shot. So well, he had Brett Favre in front of him. I mean, the, you know, you know, uh, the, the idea, the merits of, of Jordan Love's readiness right now isn't front and center the fact of the matter is when you're in a spot regardless of where you are whether you're in green bay or in tampa bay when you're right there and you can taste that championship you, you know you got to 
go for it and strike while the iron is hot. So if you want to convince me that, you know what, the Packers have, they're, they're so good on both sides of the ball and, and they're, they're really solid. And you bring in a veteran like Derek Carr and he's good enough where we can win with him. I won't, I won't, you know, fend you off. I'm not going to argue that Derek Carr is in the league with Aaron Rodgers. I'm not stupid, but what, if you want to do something like that, I'll buy it. But if the Denver Broncos only have Drew Locke and or Teddy Bridgewater to offer me as part of a package, I'm not doing it because I'm ready to win a Super Bowl right now. I was a play or two away from being in that Super Bowl a year ago. I have to have a viable alternative to Rodgers if I'm going to deal him in the next couple of weeks. If not, I'm not moving him. No wow, no way, unless I am totally and unequivocally convinced that he will never play for me again. So then what we're saying is that this general manager made a mistake in that draft and to move up to take Jordan Love because then it's a monumental failure as far as that general manager. That's an ink stain on his resume because for him to do that and not get a piece possibly in that first round to help out that roster for Aaron Rodgers to win another Super Bowl, then that's on a GM. And, then and, maybe that, and that's, what we said, that's what we said immediately following the pick. No That's doubt. what we said. Is no, that what they, we, so, they should so what have we, filled the roster with more pieces. So how do we feel about what San Francisco so did then, here with so Trey Lance? Well, let me let me ask you another question then. Then why weren't they were extend, why wouldn't they have extended Aaron Rodgers prior to the free agent period in order to free up some cap space? Because they could have did that and they didn't. The Packers did not do that. They never freed up any cap. They could have freed up plenty of cap space there if they would have extended Aaron Rodgers another two, three years. And they didn't even do that to Packers. So they really had no money to play with in free agency at all. So well, that's again, another if you, situation. If you, if you sign him to an extension, then it raises more questions as to, well, now you're extending the guy? Then that makes the Jordan Love pick look even worse. It he, still looks bad. It doesn't I, matter. Either I know, way, but right this, now it looks this G, the bottom line is, and I'm not disagreeing with you, it's just the bottom line is that this GM has backed himself into a corner with the moves that he's made. Where did the Giants come up with the cash to do what they did in free agency? Well, listen, it's that they're right up against the cap. They have no flexibility to do anything whatsoever. So I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think that if you want to get something to do something done uh, and you have to rob Peter to pay Paul, you could find a way to do it. They know what they're doing in green Bay. They have proven that they know what they're doing. Yes. Again, they're not, flawless with regards to how they've handled this situation but again the 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 punishment doesn't match the crime here this was not some sort of overt slap in the face lack of respect for Aaron Rodgers by not informing him ahead of time and picking up a phone saying by the way we're about to draft your successor you know down the road I just I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll never, I'll never buy that because the Packers have shown more than any other organization that the proof is in the pudding. They know how to do that. Aaron Rodgers is living proof of it. Well, listen, the, the NFC East is a division that we talk about a lot, obviously with, with you and Robbie and giants fans. And on the topic of Aaron Rodgers is actually the perfect time to bring this up because when you look at the NFC East, you have three teams that are all in a similar predicament, that being the Giants, the Eagles, and the Dolphins. And those are three teams that all have young quarterbacks. That Dolphins are, are Dol- Dolphins are AFC East, but yeah, I get it. Oh, you're right, right. Dolphins in the AFC East <laughs> and, the, and the Eagles and the I Giants in the that. NFC East. 
And those three teams are all teams with young quarterbacks that have something to prove going into this year. And they're also three teams that actually possess a boatload of draft capital to be able to facilitate some kind of a move, whether it be moving up in a future draft to select a quarterback in round one or packaging those assets in a trade for a guy like Aaron Rodgers, for a guy like Deshaun Watson, if um, if their quarterbacks don't – well, with Deshaun Watson's case, if these allegations turn up to be moot. Uh, I think the Giants are probably poised to, to, to be in this sort of position more than the other two teams just simply because the clock is accelerated a little bit on Daniel Jones as he's approaching year three whereas Jalen Hurts and Tua are approaching year two. And I also think that Daniel Jones, although I would have liked to have seen the Giants address the offensive line at at some point during the draft, and we spoke about that ad nauseum last week, I I do think that the Giants have surrounded this roster from top to bottom with certainly enough talent that if you're unsure about Daniel Jones after this season, I think that tells you everything you need to know. And the Giants are in a position with the trades that they made moving back in the third round and moving back in the first round with the Chicago Bears. They have enough capital to get something done, whether it's in the trade market or moving up in a draft to select the quarterback in 2022. Yeah, I just don't think Deshaun Watson's on the table for them, though. There's too much, you know, too much crap around them right now, no matter what might happen. I, I don't see that happening unless all these allegations become un, unsubstantiated, you know, and and he's cleared of everything. Then I obviously I could see, but then it'll take a haul from the Texans if he's if, if he if he does what I think he's going to do, and I think that's what his attorneys are going to tell him to do, is he's just going to give them payoff money, and this will never go to court. It'll never go to court, give him payoff money. Then the NFL will do their own, own investigation. They'll probably wind up suspending him, you know, in conjunction with what the Texans want to do as far as the suspension as well. But he's never going to wind up on a giant roster, no matter how much draft capital the Giants might have. And again, you know my stance on Rodgers. I think he goes to an AFC team. If he does get traded, he's definitely not staying with the NFC. I just, I just can't see the the, the Packers wanting to do that. So um, that only leaves you with maybe Russell Wilson, and I don't see the Giants going in that direction. So if Wilson's a flop, Bruce, then if he's a flop, then the Giants are going to have a top ten pick themselves. And if the Bears are what we expect the Bears to be, they might have another top ten pick. So you're going to have your choice of a quarterback somewhere, probably. Well, yeah, you know, we touched on it last week that, you know, thank goodness we're in a situation now where we have some recourse if Daniel Jones shows to not be the guy uh, after this season, which, uh, by the way, is not a notion that I am wholeheartedly sold on. I think the guy has a lot of ability. I think he has, you know, the physical and and mental uh, attributes to be uh, not just a good quarterback, but not necessarily a great one, but a very, very good one. Whether he ever develops that pocket presence, that quote unquote feel for the position that remains to be seen. That is the one key attribute of his game that he's lacking right now. I, I kind of think though, that while the giants again are in a, a fortuitous spot where at least they now have, you know, alternative means of finding that next guy. I kind of think the Eagles are in a more advantageous situation. Remember, they're going to have three number one picks next year, three number one draft picks, you know, including their own, which is going to be a a prime, prime spot. The one they get from the Colts and the Dolphins, not so much. I mean, that is going to be very difficult to combat. I think it's, it spells what could be a very, very telling 
intriguing, scintillating offseason fight uh, between Philadelphia and the Giants. You know, for one of these free agent quarterbacks, I'll buy your narrative on, on Watson as far as the Giants are concerned, given how conservative they are. Uh, Rodgers, I wouldn't discount. Wilson would be the guy. I, I don't, I mean, you know, Wilson will be 33, 34 years old. That, that would be a guy that I think they would go at potentially, uh, you know, fully, you know, with a shotgun fully cocked and loaded and go full throttle for, for a guy like that who will be imminently available by all accounts uh, this time next year. And the Dolphins, look, they got there the, the draft capital from the, from the 49ers, uh, you know, deal that they just consummated to play with, you know, two is kind of in that same boat that Daniel Jones is, even though they're not at the, exactly the same spot in their respective careers. You know, what's interesting. I, I was thinking about this and I don't mean to get off the beaten path, but you know, I I've, I've said this to you guys on a couple of occasions. I wish the giants, or I wish Daniel Jones would hear and feel the same kind of universal praise outside the locker room that he does obviously within the confines of, of MetLife stadium, you know, because you, 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 you fall back on, well, yes, the giants, the players management across the board, they're just effusive in their praise for everything that Daniel Jones is and what he can be. And then you say to yourself, well, what other possible take could they have on the guy? And then you think of a guy like Tua, and you recall that article in the Miami Herald a few months back where several notable Miami players anonymously came out and depicted Tua as a guy who, quote unquote, can't play and isn't the guy. So, you know, maybe it's maybe we shouldn't poo poo the fact that, you know, it, you know what the Giants themselves, themselves are saying and projecting for Daniel Jones. Maybe there is more to that than we give it credit for. Yeah, I mean, listen, it could have a little life to it. I, I mean, it's funny, too, because I was watching a replay of uh, – I was watching uh, the Giant Chronicles last night, and they were Giant Access Blue and talking about Daniel Jones, and they were showing his draft day. And when his name was called that year that he got drafted, I mean, it was just Eli Manning-esque. There was no emotion from him whatsoever. Oh, he's it, Eli Manning. I mean, he's Eli Manning. I that, personally, it, it, I personally I, passed out when Roger Goodell made that announcement, so I don't really <laughs> enjoy harkening back to that night. But yeah, I mean, again, everything is, it's unreal. is there. And I know we don't want to, you know, we have months to break down Daniel Jones, what he is, what he isn't. But you know, the one thing that concerns you is he doesn't feel a rush, which obviously goes to lack of a pocket presence. Now, you know, is that something that can be fixed? I think so with more experience. The other thing that bothers you too is that whenever you see a highlight rip of him, whether it's on the NFL network or on ESPN, it just, it sticks out to me that on all these highlight reels of him, all these great throws, they're always on his first read. You know, when that guy, when, when there's a play called in the huddle and it's there, that throw is on time and on the money with all the requisite zip. But, you know, you watch him enough, you wonder if, okay, if that initial guy isn't there, you know, does he have it to go to that second and third read? I think these are things that are fair to question about him. But I certainly think that the Daniel Jones dissenters and the criticisms of him as being 
you know, totally uh, worthless and inadequate in terms of what he's done the first couple of years in this league are wholeheartedly unfair. Wholeheartedly. Well, jumping off the last thing that you said, Bruce, as far as going through second and third reads, I think one thing that's really going to alleviate that this year is that for the first time in Daniel Jones's career, he actually has three bona fide receivers that can create separation. And thus he is able to go through three reads of receivers who are capable of getting open. Uh, like I think Darius Slayton is a good receiver. Is he a go-to option? No. Uh, but when you're going to have Kadarius, Tony Sterling Shepard um, and Kenny Galladay to your left and right, not mentioning Evan Ingram, if he could finally catch the football even, and Kyle Rudolph. Ross, don't forget John Ross. If he's healthy, I John mean, Ross, healthy being a home run hitter. Like he finally has capable receivers on both sides that can create separation within a defense. And thus there are reads to be read. If that makes any sense. Yeah, as long as he's not planted, you know, three feet below the surface. But, <laughs> right, right. Know, the offensive line is going to have a lot to say about all this. But, yeah, listen, there is more than enough in place where Daniel Jones should have what he needs to to make that requisite jump that we've talked about. But it's not perfect. And let's face it, Rob, you and I know we have watched this franchise uh, for, for over four decades right now. They are as conservative as they come. And while we're talking about what all their prospective quarterback options could be going forward, I don't see Daniel Jones falling on his face in year three. I think his floor is as a game manager. And if that's the case, do you would you say with full conviction that the Giants are then going to move on from him as much as they revere and love this kid? It's possible only because floor, you know, game manager with the roster he has around him. I mean, and, and the talent that this kid could show and, you know, I, I just don't think that he'd be that guy. I mean, we're talking game manager, you know, Joe Flacco after he won the Super Bowl, we're talking Trent Dilfer game manager, uh, you know, you're talking guys like that. I, I can't see them settling for that. Not when this kid was the sixth pick overall and it was a controversial pick as it was because he went out on a limp to take this kid that early. So the fact that you're going to take this kid and you're going to justify him playing as a game manager, I, I think that kid becomes a bust then, in my well, opinion. Well, like Bruce said before, we were on the baseball topic. Winning is the best deodorant. And so whatever shortcomings Daniel Jones has, if the Giants are winning 10, 11 games, it's going to mask the odor of whatever he is doing to not meet expectations. That's just the bottom line. I mean, yeah, in, 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 and, a, and in the back of your point. mind, you could say he's not living up to what the billing was, but – if the Giants are winning, that tells that tells everything you need to know about the story. Well, look, again, it's going to come down to how he plays in a playoff game, too, if the Giants make the playoffs. Right. Because, again, Eli Manning wasn't the greatest regular season quarterback. Statistically, he was probably very good for maybe three, maybe four of the seasons in his 15-year career. But when it came down to a, you know being in a playoff game, he, had, he was an assassin. He was an no. assassin. And if Daniel Jones could just play – a little bit above above what you would consider a game manager, but all of a sudden he turns it up in the playoffs, then that's a little different. That's a different look. Thing. You know what I'm looking forward to seeing from Daniel Jones? And there's no doubt in my mind, I think this is a genuine possibility. Later on in the season, the Giants and Washington football team are both in the hunt for the NFC East crown. You flex that game in Washington to a Sunday night game. I mean, the schedule obviously is being released tomorrow, so we'll know for sure when exactly they're playing Washington. But 
I mean, we know the potential of that Washington defense. That's a ferocious bunch, and that ultimately is going to carry them to wherever they want to go. <laughs> I want I want to see Daniel Jones in a Sunday night environment in Washington with full capacity, presumably, if things continue to open up as the year goes on and more people get vaccinated. And I want to see how he performs in a hostile environment on primetime TV. I'm, I'm laughing because if there's, if there's one thing you can't knock Daniel Jones for, is his ability to beat the Washington Redskins. That's probably the only team. Yeah, the only team he beats. Regular right. degree of success again. But I, I think this year will probably be a bigger test than any, given how oh, much yeah. that defense has improved since Ron Rivera took over. You know, something else that shouldn't be overlooked here is we all know that Dave Gettleman has hitched his wagon to Daniel Jones for better or worse. But the coach, Joe Judge, who was obviously not there when that particular selection was made, he has gone above and beyond to support, to back, to lift up, to propel, throw any adjective you want. But he is a Daniel Jones guy. The Giants had an opportunity, if they wanted to, given where they were drafting, to alter that quarterback scenario if they so chose. And given the influence we know the head coach has there, that could have come to fruition. I, that wouldn't have stunned me in the least. But by all accounts, Daniel or uh, Joe Judge has no second thoughts with regards to his current signal caller. Yeah, I don't think – I think he's – I think he has to be locked in on Daniel Jones because it's the general manager's pick. I mean, they had to give him a third. They have to give him this year. I mean, for them, for them to, to sit there at 11 and to draft Justin Fields – What's it telling you? Then what are you going to do with Daniel Jones from there? Now you're going to start backtracking with a rookie quarterback again and trying to develop another guy for two, three years. Why all of a sudden you just spent all this money into this, into this roster through free agency. So I think he's got no choice, but to have to back Daniel Jones judge. He's got no choice, but to back him. We'll see. Listen, this is going to be the telltale year for him, but you know, it, it leads us into the jets and you know, Bruce brings up a good point that he had posed to us, Andrew, and do you think the Jets are this year's version of the Knicks where they're going to grossly overachieve? And we don't know if the Knicks grossly overachieve. We'll find that out more next year. But can the Jets are the Jets capable of winning seven, eight games, nine games, possible wild card? Is that they, is that on board? I think that they certainly are capable of it. And here's the reason why. Number one, you just infuse more youth into the quarterback position, and we don't know what we're going to see from Zach Wilson. There is nothing that is going to tell you that you should expect him to light the world on fire, but I also don't think there's anything that tells you to expect that he's going to fall flat on his face, uh, even though Tommy has his reservations about whether or not he can be competitive at the pro level because of the lack of competition he's faced in college. I mean, there is a chance that Zach Wilson can come in here and play really well. The reason why I think it's it's – in, in the realm of possibility for the Jets to compete this season is because there are two massive wild cards inside their division. The Dolphins and Patriots, who both are in a similar situation, they both have pretty talented rosters. The Patriots making the roster more talented with all the money they spent in free agency. And the Dolphins, I mean, we know how talented that roster is from top to bottom because they had a good season last year. But both of those teams with the quarterbacks, Tua in Miami, Cam in New England, albeit different circumstances. You have an older quarterback in Cam Newton that we don't know how much game he has left. And you have a younger quarterback in Tua, which we don't know how much he's going to progress. If both of those quarterbacks do not show out this year and they both fall flat on their face, 
that takes away from any possibility of those two teams competing. And that makes four games on the Jets' schedule that much more winnable. So, yeah, they certainly can compete. I mean, I think Buffalo is going to run away with this division, and I don't think anyone could really argue with that. Um, but the, the, the Jets have the opportunity here, especially now that we all think that Joe Douglas actually has a, a direction that this franchise is headed in. I think it's entirely possible that they can compete if Wilson fits the billing of a number two overall pick. Yeah, you know, well, first of all, as far as your next comment, Vegas had them at about 20 to 22 wins. They're upwards of 40 right now. So I yeah. definitely yeah, I mean, last, last week, uh, Tommy was saying that he he had a he took the over on Knicks wins and the over hit about a month and a half ago. Yeah. So I would definitely characterize them as as gross overachievers. Um you know, I, I almost look at them like the, the 2017 Yankees. You know, the Yankees will never be in that situation again in our lifetimes. The, uh, you know, the quintessential overachievers. The, Yan- the Yankees are never going to be cast in that light. And I think the Knicks, regardless of how this thing concludes, need to relish the, the climate that they're in right now because – from here on going forward, they're going to live under the specter of big expectation. And I think the Jets, despite the fact that it's been 50 years since the last championship and 10 years since the last playoff showing, I thought it was interesting that the coach came in and said, no, I don't feel any pressure at all. You know, on one side, you can look at that and say, you know, Sala, you're in New York right now. There's always going to be expectation. But on the other hand, he's absolutely right the success for the Jets is going to be measured in everything else but wins and losses. They are in such a stout division, as you guys just depicted, that they could go out there and, you know, run a glorified 17-week tryout camp and see what it looks like. And if they end up pulling up off some episodes somewhere and they end up winning, I don't know, five, six games – yeah, I think they almost, you know, they they almost fall into that Knicks category. Well, 2020. look at this. Look at it this way, Bruce. Why are they in the current situation that they're in? It's because they went through a three-year trial period with Sam Darnold where their success year in and year out was not measured on wins and losses. And in fact, the Darnold marriage did not end because of their lack of wins. It ended because of in those losses, you did not walk away from the game saying at least our young quarterback showed us promise in that game. And that's why they ultimately moved on. So it's entirely possible that the Jets could go two and 14, but you can have the utmost confidence that once you start to fill this roster out and Joe Douglas has even more drafts to be able to address certain needs, that they could they could grow into a competitive team. So a lot of it hinges on the success of Wilson and not the win and loss record. I'm 100% exactly. with if you the there. Jet, if the Jets walk out of this season at 2-14, and 14, but the quarterback has a huge year and they put up, you know, big-time, you know, numbers, including in the most important category points, the Jets will be thrilled, thrilled. Absolutely. But at the same time, you know, even if the kid is inconsistent like a rookie quarterback can tend to be and he doesn't – perform all that well, you just can't write this kid off. And that's what happens in New York very, very quickly. Kid, you know, they get written off so quick after one year, you know, so you got to, you know, everybody's got to give this kid much like Daniel Jones. You have to give him two, three years. And look, Daniel Jones' first year was terrific. I mean, outside of some of the turnovers, obviously, but 
He was pretty damn good in that first year, Daniel Jones. His second year, he regressed. Well, look at look at it this way, Rob. I'm looking at the Chargers last year were seven and nine, and Justin Herbert had a terrific season. Now the Chargers, for their roster is a lot more talented than the Jets' roster is. So it is possible that Zach Wilson can have a year similar to Justin Herbert, and the Jets can still be a, a four and twelve, five and eleven. I mean, listen, team. if the if the Jets get a year like this, Chargers had a Justin Herbert. I mean, they'd be off yeah. the, off the moon. Yeah, <laughs> guys, let's be real here. The only way the Jets could take a step back and and leave everybody with uh, ill feelings towards their prospects is if the quarterback stinks. If right. the quarterback's good, or at least holds his own, the Jet the, the Jets can't lose this year. I, I mean, you know, come on, how could it get any worse? They they they've been they're bordering on irrelevancy. Never mind being a laughing stock. You'd almost rather be a laughing stock than irrelevant. You hardly know they're there right now. I mean, if they could at least show that they have their quarterback for the future and can hold their own in a division with three real viable playoff contenders, Jets Nation will be doing cartwheels. Yeah, 100%. Now, we we mentioned in the very beginning that we compared the Jets to the Knicks as far as having the potential to be gross overachievers. And and that's kind of how you can characterize the Knicks this season, especially with their win total being as low as it was. And and here they are sitting at 40 wins uh, or close to it. 38, and yeah, 38. 38, wins. right? 38 and 20. Is that what they're sitting 38 on? 38 and 30. 38 and 30, rather. Okay. So, and they have a game at the Lakers tonight where they can essentially clinch a playoff berth without having to play in the play-in round, which is for seeds 7 through 10. And Bruce... Or, or, you, if, or if, the, if, the Heat beat, if the Heat beat the Celtics tonight. If the Heat... If the Celtics beat the Heat, then the Knicks, I think, I believe, clinch a playoff spot then. Right. And the Celtics are in a tough spot now, too, because they just learned that Jalen Brown's going to be out Jaylen for the Brown, remainder of yeah. the season with a torn ligament. So, uh, but, but when it comes to the Knicks, and, and I'm going to bring the Rangers into this, and I promise it'll tie back into the Knicks. The Rangers made headlines this past week, and it was actually the day after that we recorded last week, Rob, where James Dolan fired general manager Jeff Gordon, and he fired the – president john davidson and from all reports you hear this was something that had been festering for a while because james dolan was not thrilled with how they performed this season and thought the rebuild should be uh expedited should be moving a little bit quicker and i don't think that any fans are thinking that the rebuild is moving slower than anticipated i think we can all agree it has moved a little bit quicker than expect than expected and as it has moved quicker our expectations have kind of been recalibrated a little bit and that's why we were a little disappointed that the rangers had missed out on the playoffs the reason i bring up the rangers is because bruce you pegged a question to us earlier in the week where you said are the knicks essentially uh, is this the last year that the Knicks are essentially playing with house money? Are they going to be looked at as a team that's got to be a contender moving forward? And I tell you, what James Dolan did with the Rangers this past week, I think fully enforces the fact that this is the last year that they could be playing with house money. Because if he thought that the Rangers, who from all accounts are ahead of schedule with the way that they're playing right now, and he thought that that rebuild was moving too slow, I think he's going to feel the same way about the Knicks. And now that he knows that he has a legitimate budding star in Julius Randle, R.J. Barrett has turned into a really fine player, and he's still only 21 years old and just has room to grow. I think he's going to be looking at, as the, at the Knicks as a team that has to win. I wouldn't be surprised if they pulled off a trade for, for a star player in the offseason. 
or they tried to make something happen to take this team to the next step. And I really do think that this is going to be the last year they're going to be playing with house money, whether it's for the right or the wrong reasons. I think that's just the nature of it, because as we've seen with what transpired with the Rangers, you know, James Dolan grew impatient far too quickly. And and the same thing might be happening with the Knicks. Well, unfortunately, what the Rangers scenario last week was a blatant reminder of is that James Dolan is the perennial Achilles heel for both tenants of Madison Square Garden. I don't pretend to follow the prospects of the New York Rangers on a day in and day out baseball like like you two diehards do. But as you mentioned, uh, I'm certainly aware of the fact that the Rangers have one of the younger rosters in the sport and that everybody was more than just a little pleased uh, with their progress that, that they've made as, as the season has, has worn on, which, which made last week's decision uh, all the more baffling. And the Knicks being, again, in very light situation, <laughs> the same owner is in place. So don't take it for granted because it, it, it finally looks like they obviously have the right uh, stewardship in the front office, certainly with the head coach. Uh, and that it's obviously filtered down to the personnel decisions, but that could all change in an eye blink uh, at the whim of someone who has absolutely zero capacity for knowing how to keep a, keep a winner going or, or, or keep a, a good situation flowing. So well, and I, I thought about this a lot. disturbed if you're a Knicks fan by what happened with the Rangers last week. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I thought there, a lot about a this throughout the week. There's a couple of things that are going on with this, though, that it, you, start, you start hearing other facets of this firing going on a little bit. There was a big problem prior to the season starting where some knucklehead hacked into a, a Zoom call with some writers and Keandre Miller in which the idiot that hacked into it use some race, racial terminology towards Keandre Miller. That was one thing. There was another one, too, in which Keandre Miller scored his first goal in his career, and he never took a picture with the puck like you're normally supposed to do. And any other Ranger that scored his first goal this year took a picture with the puck. So that did not happen either. Then you're hearing that there was a problem with the whole Panarin situation as to why he was out for a full month, and that Davidson gave him the allotted time he needed. But a full month? I, I was disagreeing with that too as well. And then the big thing was after after, uh, after Timmy Panarin gets slammed to the ice by Tom Wilson viciously, where he could have cracked his skull open, you know, the, the Rangers PR staff, and we're, along with James, James Dolan, of course, puts out that whole statement about how George Paros, the director of player safety is incompetent and should, shouldn't have this job. And Jeff Gordon and John Davidson walked it back and said, Hey, we're not a part of this. Now, when you start hearing things like that, starting to formulate little by little and building up, that's the disconnect that it started coming down to, I think. And that's the disconnect he was talking oh, about. Oh, uh, you know what? I wasn't aware of, of the that litany of uh, of detail yeah. you just you just forwarded there. Yep. But I I, I got to tell you something that doesn't <laughs> to me suggest that you need to uh, uproot what has been a very successful regime in your front office, including a guy who even I know is rather iconic 
amongst the Ranger masses and John Davidson. That, that, that doesn't suggest to me that, hey, okay, we need to make a change. We need to make a change now. That, but you know what? Here, here's the thing, and, and that's the big part of the, – the big thing that stands out to me in that situation is because what is the common denominator with all the dysfunction that has happened either with the Knicks or the Rangers – over the past 25, 30 yeah, years. It's, it's it, James Dolan. But there's the, different but the, players. There's different yeah. front office members. James Dolan is the one constant, so he seems to be the cause for the disconnect b- between the, the front office, the players, and ownership. And But the Rangers haven't had that disconnect on the James Dolan over the last probably 10 they, 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 they haven't, and you know what? I, I think the disconnect or, or the, the, that lack of disconnect, that connectiveness – comes from the fact that the front office had did such a good job in expediting this Andrew, rebuild, so you Andrew, forgot though, about it. But listen, listen. From the day we started this podcast, what did I tell you about this Ranger team? What what what, what was my my theme every single time we talked about the Rangers? What they lacked: toughness and grit. Yes, north south players, not east west. And I'm telling you right now, guys like Mark Messier, guys like Glenn Sather, got in Dolan's ear and said, "Hey." Listen, and Messier said it the other day when he was on the Michael K show, he just happened to be on the day that they fired. He was already booked to come on because he was promoting something with some memorabilia or something that he's connected with now. But, and he said, listen, you got to build your team that could be ready for a street fight. And if you don't have that, you're not, you're, the odds of winning are decreased. I don't care what anybody says. Glenn Sather still has a voice in that arena. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if Messier does also because Messier pretty much absolved Tom Wilson of any misdoings in that whole situation with the Rangers that night. And he said, I would, he, he pretty much said any Ranger fan would love to have Tom Wilson on their team. He goes, they would love to have a guy like, you need a guy like that on your team. And the Rangers do not have that. You don't win with sexiness in the NHL, and I've told you that for a year, Andrew. I've been saying North South. You got to get North South played. You got to guys. Guys are going to be gritty. They're going to stand up and fight for your team. Because when the Rangers came down to have to play Boston, they have to play Washington, they have to play the Islanders. They got their ass kicked, and not just on the scoreboard. They were getting their ass kicked physically, where these kids had no space to play. And not only that, you have all these young kids on the team, and you're not giving them any sign, any any sort of protection here. You have to be able to protect these young kids. They can't fight their way in the NHL. You got to have a couple of guys going to be willing to stand up for him. Well, stand I, up for them. I, I think that if if what you're suggesting here is that Davidson and Gorton did not have, uh, they didn't deem it necessary to be building a, a team that way. And word got to Dolan that they needed it, and he decided that a change needed to be made. I think I, I, I kind of think that's that what's that might be happening here. Well, and I would sometimes- have I have an explanation for why that might be happening, and that's because if you remember correctly, Jeff Gordon was not an outsider. Jeff Gordon was Glenn Sather's right hand man when Glenn Sather was fired as general manager, and so Jeff Gordon sitting in chair number two, watching Sather build a team that had a lot of toughness and grit, but ultimately fell short because they lacked a premier goal scorer and they lacked some skill players, Jeff Gorton decided to build a team the total opposite way and just go fully with skill and ignore the toughness part. And they fell short the first time. Thus far, they're falling short the second time. And I think you need a little bit of a balance in between there. And, and look, Rob, coming am, I reading, that- am, I, 
am I reading your your read correct correctly here? Are, are you justifying the regime change, suggesting that the incident with with uh, with Wilson last week was just a tipping point that this has been something that had been building no doubt and that that was the straw that broke no the doubt. And, and I'm going to tell you why Bruce because last year when they came off the off the shortened season and then they made that you know those play-in games against Carolina they got out physical in every facet of the game and Andrew, you know it. I'm, yeah. Bruce, I'm not sure if you and, watched and the game. Here's a here's a key thing that so didn't was, get mentioned. It was Bruce. noticeable. It was noticeable that they needed some more grit and toughness on that team, and they never yeah. addressed it. Well, and it and it doesn't necessarily mean that a regime change needed to be made. I mean, you could have had a conversation with Davidson and and Gorton and said that this is what you're missing. But I, I one one key detail that we didn't mention, and Bruce, I think it's imperative that you hear, hear this, is that. Davidson and Gorton did not initially walk back the statement that James Dolan made. Uh, there was an article posted in The Athletic which stated that after the Rangers made that statement public saying that it was a dereliction of duty on the part of George Paros and that he was unfit to continue in his current role, uh, it seemed like Paros gained support amongst other front offices around the league. Which is and bullshit, it, and that's bullshit. Well, after that was after that re- was reported was allegedly when Davidson and Gorton started to no. walk back their involvement in that statement right. was when but they realized saying, that other other front offices didn't agree with it. I'm saying it's bullshit on the part of other general managers to say, oh, well, they shouldn't have come out and said that because if that was their superstar player that got slammed to the ice and got knocked out for the last three games of the season, I'm sure they'd be saying the same thing if Tom Wilson wasn't suspended. Well, you know what? And I got to say, I I disagree with a small part of that. I I don't think it has anything. And that's one thing that's actually annoyed me about the mainstream media and their covering of that whole situation was that they keep mentioning Panarin and keep mentioning superstar player. To me, it doesn't matter who it was. I'm not mad because it was Panarin. I'm mad at the actions itself, whether it was to Artemi Panarin or whether it was to Johnny Brzezinski. He should be suspended for what he did. But the NHL has taken a lot of this this sort of fighting out and this sort of type of play out because they're trying to protect their superstar players. At the same time, you have a brand. And you're trying to promote your brand with superstar players. Uh, Timmy Panarin is arguably a top five, top seven player in the league. I mean, you can't have him getting ragdolled by Tom Wilson. Uh, you can't have that. It can't happen. And then you're turning around and, and you, this, if he was a first time offender, I'd say, okay, I, I, I get the fact maybe they didn't suspend him, but he should have been suspended. But the fact that he's a four five time uh, uh, offender where he's been, you know, for multiple games, for the same sort of infractions, that's the problem here. That's a problem. Well, and the thing is, too, is that Jeff Gorton and John Davidson both released statements after their firing, and they essentially thanked everybody who's ever stepped foot in the state of New York, except for James Dolan. Oh, So what's, look, so what's the vibe with the franchise going forward now? I, look, I think they're in good hands with Drury. Drury's been there. He's been in the room with, with both those guys. Drury's been there for a few years. And in fact, you know, Chris Drury has gone on multiple interview, interviews for GM jobs in which he's then turned it down 
to come back to the Rangers. So I think Drury is ready for this. Uh, and and that, that I think reinforces the fact that this has been festering for a while because I find it hard to believe that he'd be turning down GM positions. One particular right. was with the Pittsburgh Penguins, who have been a great right. organization for the past 20 years. I find it incredibly hard to believe that he'd be turning down a position like that if he didn't know that he was going to be promoted at some point within the Rangers organization. The yeah. all-around vibe throughout the National Hockey League, Bruce, is that Drury is going to be a guy who's going to excel in this role because he has that old-school mentality where he wants to get size and toughness and grit and north-south players, but he's also very receptive to the analytics, which has seemed to be infiltrating all four major sports at this point. And so he's he's widely respected throughout the game. And he's an in-house person, right? Like, you're not hiring a total outsider to come in with a team full of young players that they didn't select and they didn't scout. And he's a guy who is in the room for all these decisions being made. He's a guy who has scouted all these players. He's a guy who sat behind the bench when David Quinn and company had to miss a handful of games this year due to COVID protocols. So the familiarity aspect of it, I think, kind of lessens the learning curve when it comes to someone who doesn't have general manager experience. Well, so. And here's, here's another problem that I have right now. And, and, you know, part of the reasoning too, was the fact that they were stating that they didn't like the playing time that the young players were getting, that they should have been getting more playing time because these kids were that talented. Doesn't that fall back on the coach? I mean, <laughs> so to me, if you're going to come out with a statement like that, and say that part of the reason why they were fired as well was because of, of the lack of playing time that these younger players were getting, and they didn't feel like they were progressing properly because they weren't getting enough playing time. Well, doesn't that fall back on a coach? Well, I'm, so gl- I'm glad go, you... So so then Dolan, Dolan actually didn't go far enough in your estimation. Quinn should yes. have been gone too. Yes. Well, they're saying that Quinn's fate is going to be decided over the next week. Now, that's what that, I'm glad you brought up, Quinn, because I was going to ask you, Rob, take your personal feelings out of this, because obviously you and I for weeks, months, millenniums at this point have been stating our displeasure with David Quinn. So taking your personal feelings out of the mix and what you would want to have happen. What does your gut tell you? Do you think by this time next week we're sitting on here recording a podcast with the Rangers having a head coaching vacancy, or do you see us recording with Chris Jury giving a, a vote of confidence to David Quinn moving well, forward? Here's the problem. We have two problems. I, I think I think there's going to be a vacancy, but I think Drury's thinking long and hard because Drury does have a relationship with Quinn dating prior to him even being an NHL head coach. But still, a business is a business. you know. And if Dolan, one of the things Dolan said was he, he took the pulse of, of other GMs around the league and said, your team is so talented. I can't understand how you guys aren't in the playoffs. Well, that's going to fall back on the coach. And then Dolan's going to tell Drury, hey, listen, this coach has to be fired. And I think ultimately he will be fired because I don't think these young kids did play enough. And when you had situations to play these kids, to me, you play these kids. They're talented. They were drafted high. Lafreniere was drafted number one overall. Kako, number two overall. Heedle was number nine overall. Kraftsaw was number You got to play these kids you have to play them and if they make a mistake so be it they make a mistake but you have to play these kids you have to well when when you're when like you said it's a business and you cannot allow your decision making process to be infiltrated by personal personal professional relationships because just ask brody van wagnon how that worked out during his tenure as mets general manager right yeah not the proper way to run a business Where's Mike Keenan? Yeah, listen, I loved Mike Keenan. He was a nut, but I loved Mike Keenan. Uh, And, you know, you're hearing John Tortorella possibly, which I don't think would be a good mix with young players. Another coach I don't think would be a good mix with some young players. 
you know, he he's he's like sandpaper, Tortorella. You know, he he's he's like sandpaper. I mean, he yeah, kind been of been there, done that. Yeah, been there, done that. I, I I agree with that. Now, again, who's the replacement? Look, there's there's veteran coaches that are out there. Who's going to be the best fit to help these young kids? Not so much develop anymore, but but play them, play them. Well, let's see again. A, how desirable is this job? And B, what are the what are the expectations? I, I mean, what are you what exactly? What kind of cauldron is this head coach walking into? Well, I'll tell you what, he's walking into uh, probably the most desirable uh, job and desirable on the planet job right now. out there on the planet because of the young players and the talent level they have. They pretty much have the number one prospect system in the NHL, and that includes a couple of the young players that have played with the NHL team this season. So it's a very desirable job, and every coach that's available will be lining up. Well, listen, no I, I, I wasn't immediately against the John Tortorella thing because I like his aura. I, I like the presence he brings behind the bench, and I don't think he would be handling the young players the same way that Quinn does with punishing them when they make mistakes. However, on the other hand, you got to look at Exhibit A from his time in Columbus and look at the fact that one of the best young players in the game, and Pierre-Luc Dubois, asked to be traded. Yeah. And that has a direct correlation with the coach, and there's nothing you can say that can convince me otherwise. So if that is your litmus test to how Tortorella can develop young superstar talent, then I don't know if that's the, the right guy that you want to be bringing in for this job when you have the youngest roster in the NHL. I mean, there are veteran coaches out there, guys like Bruce Pedreau, if you could take him out of retirement. I know he's doing a fantastic job with the NHL Network right now, but he's certainly a guy who's interested in coaching again, and everyone's in agreement that he can Ger still coach. Gerard Gallant. Gallant is out there who, you know, took Vegas as an expansion team to the Stanley Cup in their first year of existence. So, well, you know what? Some people are saying that James Dolan got so bored with the Knicks because they're winning now. He had to come over to the Rangers and disrupt them. Now. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> the Knicks are doing well now. Oh, you know, what am I going to do? The Knicks are winning now. Let me go to the Rangers. He had to move on over and then put his fingerprints on the other team in town. So and the as we said, the Knicks, Knicks are winning in big, spite. The Knicks Whatever it takes to stay away from the Knicks, please. Yeah. Well, listen, I, uh, you know, Look, again, they grossly overachieved, uh, overachieved the Knicks, but they had a great coach. He should be coach of the year, in, in my opinion, uh, Thibodeau. But, you know but, what? But, but before we get into this, this, this uh, you know, battle with the Lakers tonight that is getting so much attention, unfortunately, as Andrew stipulated earlier, there'll be no LeBron. He's uh, going to rest up that ankle another night, maybe come back, I, I think, tomorrow against the Spurs. But you got you to gotta look back at the – what the meaningfulness of the win Sunday at the Clippers, because they haven't, never mind this season in recent memory, I can't remember as meaningful a win for this franchise. They needed it just because they really, let's face it. They don't, they don't have anything close to that kind of win on their ledger this year, especially on the road. You know, they beat the Bucks, but there was no Giannis and an assortment of others. They don't have, a win with, with this kind of cloud on, on their resume. And I think that that's the turn of events that really cast the prospects of this franchise, not, a not just for what they have coming up with the playoffs, but what they've accomplished this year. That That's more than just a cherry on top of the Sunday. No, that, that's that win on, on Mother's Day had uh, immense yeah. significance. 
And that's and that's the first win against the Clippers in LA since November 2010. So yeah, long time ago. Talk they about significant. Right. They play there twice a year and they haven't won in that building. And let me tell you something. Years. If if you're a team facing the Knicks, you, you know, you, it's they're gonna be a tough out because of their defense. They're gonna be a tough team to yeah. play against. You know, and, they're, they're no slouches offensively no, either, guys. I no, mean, they're not, some of the they're, numbers are shooting not. 40% from three. You know, they they they're, they look like a, re- a well-oiled machine, especially when Rose is out there conducting things. Uh, you know, they're not – I know everyone's suggesting, yeah, you know what, the Knicks are – as long as you muck things up and make it ugly, you know, the Knicks are going to be in every game. They're not playing not that brand, no, offensively. No, no. No, they're not bad offensively. Look, no, they and, gotta, and, the, they, and the biggest thing is when you have when you have a hard nosed coach that comes into a situation where the team is not accustomed to winning, a lot of times it could blow up in their face, especially if you're not winning. And that's why I think that Tom Thibodeau has fizzled out when he's with other teams, because that hard nosed mentality doesn't always resonate with a locker room that isn't winning basketball games. But being that the Knicks have enjoyed success all season long. Every single player on that roster is fully buying in and embracing that brand of basketball. And they're making it increasingly tough on anybody to come into their building. And even when the Knicks are on the road, they're making it tough. And I said this before, Bruce, I mean, I'm not put on your tinfoil hat. I mean, I'm not one for crazy conspiracies, but I'm telling you, there's no doubt in my mind that LeBron James did not play tonight's game and took an extra day because he did not want to go against the Knicks because he know it's, knows it's a tough brand of basketball and he would rather not push his ankle in a game where there's going to be a lot of ferocity on the defensive end, especially when the seating is – there's not really much room to move up in the seating for the Lakers. They're pretty much cemented exactly. into that play-in spot. Yeah. I, I, I don't doubt whatsoever that the level of competition tonight is a mitigating factor, uh, but the bottom line is, listen, it, it's – you're, you're, it's a women a prayer that LeBron James is going to be right the rest of the way. He's 36 years old, uh, high ankle sprain, i.e. partial broken leg. That, that's just not going to take care of itself uh, until there's, there's a lot more rest put into the equation here. As you suggested, they're going to be in this play, much to his chagrin, they're going to be part of this play in tournament. And you know what? They're going to keep their fingers firmly crossed that James is healthy enough, along with Anthony Davis, who might not say he's 100% healthy, but he's certainly playing like it is, <laughs> given his most recent efforts. And, you know, if James is at least mostly right and Davis is right, get some other, you know, Schrader, you know, if, if he's somewhat healthy, Listen, the West is deep. The West has a lot of really good teams, but they don't have a behemoth out there. I don't think no. it would stun anybody in the least if the Lakers are, again, the representative of the Western Conference in the finals. Uh, yeah, I agree with that, Bruce. I really do. Yeah, there, there's not a behemoth there. You know, when you look at the Jazz and his sons who have the 1-2 seed right now, do they scare you? No, no. And, I, and that's not to slight them. I mean, no, you know, it's the not. Jazz have been terif- terrific from go. Uh, the Suns, are, you know, are, are great on both ends of the floor. You love their backcourt with with Paul and Booker. I mean, these are really good teams. I'm not trying to, you know, discount their their prospects, but you know, we have to remember when it comes doctor, to the Jazz I'm only too. Playing one on this podcast, so I don't because I don't think LeBron James is going to be right. Doesn't necessarily make it so, but if he's right and Davis are right, the Lakers are the team to beat the West. Yeah, well, you got to remember too. 
when it comes to the Jazz. I mean, Donovan Mitchell is out for the rest of the season. He is not going to be reevaluated until playoff time with an ankle injury of his own. So if he's not right, that takes away from a lot that the Jazz can do. So, yeah, I mean, it. You're talking about all these different different circumstances with these Western Conference teams. I mean, the Nuggets are a team that I think is really good. You take Jamal Murray out of that equation with the torn ACL, that takes away a lot of what makes Denver so good too. So ultimately, I think that the, the East is going to breed the toughest competition for an NBA championship this year, whether and, it be and, from Philadelphia, and, Milwaukee, or Brooklyn. And let's, let's, let's face it, boys. Look at the way things line up right now for the Knicks. More than likely, I know the Heat are still in, in, in the mix there. You discussed the Celtics and the Brown injury. That dooms them. They're, they're, they're in the playing tournament. So, barring the unforeseen Knicks-Hawks, round one, Knicks survive that series. They get Philadelphia in the second round. Philadelphia has earned that distinction. Love the coach. Love Embiid. They're on a terrific roll right now. They're red hot. They're not exactly beating a murderer's row. Uh, worthy teams, you know, at the moment, but Philadelphia is, Philadelphia is beatable. I mean, I, I, you don't want to put the cart before the horse. You want to walk before you can run any more analogies. You guys want me to throw out there? I'll, I'll come up with as many as you want. Keep them coming. They're great. But the fact (laughs) of the matter is you kind of like where the Knicks is sitting right now is, you know, assuming their magic number is one right now and they nail down that fourth seed, not just for, where they are in round two, but uh, round one, but maybe even round two. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So as the Orioles get on the board, one nothing, getting shut out by John Means, who came out of the game, which is probably good news for the Mets at this point right now. But he's um, terrific, boy. I'll, I'll tell you something. Uh, you know what? You could cast aspersions all you want on the Wade Miley no hitter. Means is the real deal. I, I don't know how he's done it, but we say this about a lot of pitchers in the game right now. I don't know where Means has found this renewed velocity. You know, he used to be an 89 to 91 kind of guy, and he's all of a sudden 94 to 96 with that deadly changeup. He's legit. Now he's no kid. He's he's like he's 28 years old, but boy, he is he is something special. That was that was no fluke uh, the other day in Seattle, no. and it's too bad that obscure circumstance cost him the perfect game what what do you guys think about the whole albert pujols you know releasing i I thought it was a little overblown you know you got guys like mike trout coming coming out and speaking out against it and some other other players around the league talking about how they disrespected pujols how could you disrespect pujols when you signed him to a 10-year 240 million dollar deal and he never really gave you the seasons he had in st louis he gave me three good seasons, but with, with the additional hit. ten years tacked on with the services contract, with the or, services contract as yeah. well. So where did the, where was the injustice done to Albert Pujols here? Am I reading something wrong about this? No, you're asking rhetorically, obviously, because the Angels did absolutely nothing wrong here. With all due respect to David Ortiz, Pedro Martinez, and Adrian Beltre, uh, the Angels are and especially now have to be in the business of winning ball games. And Albert Pujols, as wondrous a resume as he has put forth and a inner circle Hall of Famer that he is, but his release was was absolutely warranted. They just they couldn't uh, yeah, do it anymore. A hundred percent. I think that the whole thing is overblown too. Uh, you have guys like Adrian Beltre, David Ortiz, another one coming out and just saying that it was, uh, what was the adjective? That, that it was like, like the worst 
release worst business decision that we've ever seen in sports history. And I just don't understand. I mean, like you said, Bruce, the angels are in the business of winning ball games as they always should be. They haven't done a good job of that in the tenure that they've had the best player in baseball. And Albert Pujols is a player that's standing in the way of that. Um, I think if the Tigers turned around and did the same thing with Miguel Cabrera, you would probably get the same reaction from a lot of people, even though he's a guy that's hitting a 105 right now. I mean, these guys are, are players that will be first ballot Hall of Famers, legends in their own right, One of the, some of the best hitters. I think Albert Pujols will probably go down as the best hitter that I've seen in my lifetime of watching the sport. But the, the game has passed him by, and he's no longer contributing. And if you're in the business of winning ball games, and he's hindering that, you have nothing – there's no qualms about it. You have to do what you have to do. And pool holes is within his right to be mad about it and to say that he still has game left. That's fine. But to categorize the angels as villains in this situation is, is mind boggling to me. It really is. And and, and there are viable alternatives. Jared Walsh could hit Shohei Otani can hit. I mean, they have people, you know, they have people they could put in, in his position. Jared Walsh looks like a stunt chances. You know, the bottom line here, from a narrative standpoint, guys, this really isn't all that unlike the Aaron Rodgers scenario in Green Bay. I mean, how far are these organizations required to go to send these guys off in as ideal a fashion as we'd all like to go? I mean, right. as the again, as the old saying goes, uh, thing, if things were so good, they would never end. Things always end badly because otherwise, again, they, they wouldn't end. And, and that's obviously the, the Aaron Rodgers situation is not nearly there. <laughs> Clearly, he has a, a lot left in the tank as far as his Hall of Fame career goes. But with, with pool holes, the Angels were left with no recourse here. And from what I understand, according to what I've read, they wanted to kind of Give him a chance to do what the Yankees did with A-Rod. Let him go out there, get another at-bat, tip his cap, walk off the field. And Pujols said, no, he's not ready to retire. And, and I respect that. But, you know, what are the Angels, again, supposed to do? Not only has he been terrible this year, he's been terrible for the better part of the last half decade. He can't play. Uh, and, and disgraceful. That was the word that David Ortiz used to describe it. The word was escaping me. Disgraceful is what he described it as. I, I, I just don't know how you come up with that. Just a total overreaction to something like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, them releasing him, it, look, it's an unceremonious ending, but it's not like it's the first one that we've ever heard of. It's very, very rare that these legends get to walk away from the game on their own terms. I mean, the only person in recent memory that's been able to do it has been Derek Jeter. And it was a storybook ending, right? He had the parade, every stadium that he went to, he received a piece of memorabilia. They celebrated him. And in his last home game, he gets a walk-off hit. When is When else has that ever happened? I mean, it, since I've been alive, the only people I could think of, Derek Jeter, I mean, Ray Lewis won a Super Bowl with the Ravens in his last year. Jerome Bettis won a Super Bowl with the Steelers his last year, but Bettis was a passenger, right? I mean, he he wasn't getting a, the bulk now, of carries no, with the Steelers. No clean, there's no clean way to do this. You know, no, it, it breaks- never happens. Yeah, you want to you want them to be able to say, "Hey, rip the uniform off me before I willingly stop playing." But uh, I mean, enough is enough. The Angels have been an, an afterthought for a long, long time in this sport. There's a lot of guys under a lot of pressure there. They have management, namely the owner, has made one insidious decision after another. Pujols just being one of them, and they are. I'm hesitant to put it this way, but they are wasting 
one of the most remarkable talents any of us have ever seen or will see. And again, what Trout is doing this year is it's beyond description. You know, given that we're on the East Coast, he's doing most of these things in the middle of the night, so we don't pay a lot of attention to it on a day in and day out basis. But it's just the regularity of his brilliance is beyond astounding. I, I, I was shocked that they weren't players for Trevor Bauer. I was shocked. Yeah, they seem to get it right for the most part with their everyday players. You know, other than C.J. Wilson, you're hard-pressed to find the big dollar layout for the premier pitcher. I agree with you, Robbie. I mean, that was that was tailor-made for them. They knew they weren't getting Garrett Cole last year. Okay, that, that, that wasn't happening. They could tell you they made every legit offer under the sun to, to bring the uh, hometown boy into the fold, but that, that wasn't going to happen. And yeah, I mean, Bauer, you know, glove in hand, that that's how ideal that fit was. I was, I was somewhat surprised that didn't come to uh, come to fruition either. Well, especially after Mickey Calloway was let go, because from all you read, that was one of the mitigating factors that kept Bauer from being interested in the angels was because from their days in Cleveland, they did not have a good relationship. Yeah. Andrew well, Mickey Calloway was never going to keep, the angels from landing Trevor Bauer. Well, you know, there wasn't even interest on their part. Well, that, that, that's what I'm saying. But the right. fact that the, the, those two had some discord in their prior relations was not going to stop the angels from ultimately landing Bauer. If push came to shove that Mickey Calloway could have been reassigned. I'm not saying that's right. And that that's the proper way of doing things. Right. Uh, but that that's the world we live in too. Well, much like his paycheck, say with the Dodgers, I think the forty-three million dollars this yeah. year would have would have enabled Bauer to put up with Callaway shenanigans for a year. I have one question for you, Bruce, and we're talking about the 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 way the Angels handled the pool hole situation. If we fast forward ten years from now, and I'm still doing this podcast and still trying to be successful, but Rob, the years have passed him by, and he just can no longer formulate a sentence. And I decide to cut bait with him and kick him off the podcast. We would said you, that ten would, minutes ago. <laughs> Would you say that that's disgraceful on my part? Uh, I could I could describe it as the price of doing business. <laughs> I, I, I mean, let's face it, guys. I mean, no, you know that no when to say when. Sometimes that needs to come from the exterior, not always from the from the you know interior. It's it's a hard business. This is this is professional broadcasting. Uh, not necessarily when it's coming from yours truly, but be that as it may, you know, in professional sports, you know, there's, there's a bottom line quotient to all this. And it's, you know, it, it, you know, sometimes you have to put personal sentiment and personal feeling aside and, and, and make hard decisions. So, yeah, I think we all, we all understand that you try to cushion the blow as, as, as best you can, but, you know, you have, you have to weigh the situation it's in, in its entirety and not, it's not always going to be comfortable. It's the way of the world. That's how life is. Okay. So let's throw this out here because as you're you fired, Rob, Goodbye. you're done. <laughs> <laughs> I, as you mentioned, Mike Vaccaro had a, had a column in the post and I, he usually does this at least once a year. Well, he had the top three teams in order, the Yankees, Nets, Mets as to who would, end the championship drought here in New York, but let's open it up to the Knicks, the Rangers, you know, the Giants, the Jets. 
who right now with their, with their roster presently constructed has the best chance of ending the New York drought with a championship? Brooklyn Nets. Got to be the Nets. I would have to think yeah. it would have to be the Nets. Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't know. I, I, chemistry, potential chemistry issues aside, because these guys have never played together. And that's the, that's the one ingredient that's, that's tough to account for. I have no idea how anybody beats that triumvirate if they're right and together uh, on the floor. This might be the, the greatest uh, threesome we've ever seen. Yeah, I just, uh, even though we haven't seen them yet all together for that much, I, I think a lot of people saying that the lack of familiarity between having all three of them on the court at the same time, I think it's overblown. Uh, I agree. Players, I agree. players of that ilk they're going to be able to figure it out. And even if they don't maximize their own potential, it just creates a matchup nightmare for whoever the hell they're playing against. No doubt. I mean, the Nets' only downfall is they don't play defense. <laughs> That's their only downfall, but they're yeah, going to score. And, 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 and Giannis, you know, uh, you know, a legitimate big is going to give them, you know, increasing headaches. I'm not suggesting it's going to be a cakewalk, but uh, I don't know how you overcome that kind of, pedigree and talent these are guys that are not just uber talented but they're experienced uh they've been there and done that irving durant yeah you know harden hasn't gotten over the hump but he has certainly played in his his fair amount of big games and given the weakness of the conference overall i don't <laughs> i don't know who uh who upsets that bunch i i would i would have to cast them as the uh, number one favorite amongst New York franchises, first and foremost, to end the drought. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree. And then after that, after the Nets, I'd probably go Yankees. You know, I, I, as far as talent on the roster is concerned, I would say the Yankees too. But I, I, I don't see them winning a championship with with the with the way that their team is built. Do I they have think... Do they have championship talent? I, I do but I don't think their style of play translates to winning a championship as we've seen with them falling short these past three seasons. Yeah. I wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, but given the weakness of the American league and their biggest perspective hurdle being what they would face in the world series, I think that would put them in a better position than any of the other contenders to end the so-called championship crowd. I, I think the Mets are a much better short series playoff constructed type of team than the Yankees are to be, yeah, I agree. be honest yeah. with you, given the, the makeup of the, of the lineup, the, you know, they're not all or nothing. They've got far better pure hitters throughout their lineup than the Yankees do. Uh, you know, they certainly have the starting pitching. They have the best starting pitcher in baseball uh, and the guys that follow suit are no slouches. The bullpen would make me a little nervous. So uh, come October, I probably like the Mets prospects as much, if not better. The only reason I don't say definitively better is because I think they'll have a tougher gauntlet to go through in October than the Yankees would. Well, who would you look at as, as the top competition in the American League? Would you say it's Chicago? So. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, now, are you, are by, you so by, by the way, uh, you know, I could easily say as far as the Yankees are concerned, it, it would be nice if they wouldn't fall all over themselves every time they see Tampa Bay and Houston. I'd, I'd like to see that first. We could talk about it till we're till we're blue in the face. But the fact of the matter is they've spit all, spit up all over themselves the last two years against Tampa and the last three times they've seen Houston in the postseason. Do you think Boston's for real? No. 
I, I think there, there's too many questions, both in that rotation and in that bullpen. That, le- that lineup is legit. <laughs> you know, that lineup is, is is better than the Yankees. Again, given the, the nature of the hitters that they have, not being all or nothing. But no, I, I think they're almost very much like what we talked about with the San Francisco Giants early on. in the nice early season surprise, but uh, ultimately... 2021 is is a stepping stone to perennial oh, contention in years that, that to come. I don't think it's this year. Oh, Al, oh. Albert Almora is hurt. He is. Oh my God, dear Lord. He almost made an unbelievable catch oh, in center field, but God, he ran face God. first into the he wall. Face first into the wall. Oh my God! Oh my I've done God. that before. You, you think that my nose is this size by accident, boys? Oh <laughs> my God! Oh, I thought he caught it. He had it in his glove, and he dropped yeah. it on impact. Oh, Jesus, my God! And now, oh, that, good, with, thank goodness, I'm not at Shea anymore. That would be yeah. worse. Yeah, it would have been worse. Oh my God! I mean, he went full blown into that wall and face first. Oh, now the the Mets are lucky here because the pitcher's spot in the rotation didn't come up in the bottom of the seventh. If it did, Dominic Smith would have been your pinch hitter. And then presumably you would have no outfielder on the bench to take out Morris' place if he comes out of this game, which is 100 percent going to happen. I, I you don't see, see you bring up an interesting name. That's it's not the Stantons and judges of the world. When I see guys like McNeil and Dom Smith struggle for these, and even Conforto to a degree struggle for these elongated periods of time, something's up. These guys, they're two good pure hitters to just to be struggling for the lengths of time that they have. It, it's, it's, it's symptomatic of, of what's emblematic, I should say, of what's going on in the sport right now. Hitting is just, it's virtually impossible for any number of a thousand reasons. Here's another team too. The Indians are another team like the Giants at 18 and 14. And you look at their, their lineup and it's putrid. They, they got terrific pitching. Well, they've been no hit twice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But terrific pitching. But you look at their lineup; I, it, it's horrendous. It's it's god awful. I mean, yes, but that but that we in fairness that we knew coming in that that we, we expected we did. But they're eighteen and fourteen, and I'm just trying to say that there's some of these teams out there that are not hitting at all that are pitching and they're winning games. That's it. That's the old adage: good pitching beats good hitting. Yeah. Well, That's you it. know what? When you play the Tigers and he had that ball. overachieving Royals oh. and the grossly underachieving Twins enough, that's going to pad your record. No doubt. There's not a lot of strong teams. The White Sox, notwithstanding that division, uh, I I'm stunned that the Twins are this bad. I did not expect this, and now losing Buxton again. And oh, what a start he was off. He was board. having an MVP tight. And they even lost Kirillov, too. They brought Kirillov up and they lost him. Yeah, but Buxton was a guy they've been waiting on for years. No right? doubt. He was whatever he was. The top but of Buxton's been healthy. Not, he he hasn't been overall. healthy. Always hurt. All the yeah. inconsistencies at the plate. Always a brilliant defender. But he had finally put it all together. I mean, he was having just you know, a, a, a Mike Troutian type year. No doubt. It goes down with the hip injury. Who knows when we're going to see him again? And he, he just unfortunately can't get out of his own way with the injury thing. Yeah, no, he's going to be out a couple of months, Buxton, unfortunately for him. Yeah, he was having an MVP-type season. He really was. But, On the watch. It's a damn shame. It really well, look, is. It's still, it's still early. You know, in, in that division, it's still early for the Twins in that division. 
Almaro looks like he's all right. I mean, Thank he might God. have a little I, bit of a whiplash or that was scary. He, he might have a broken nose. He, I mean, he ran like nose first into the wall. At full Let me tell you though, and he had ball, that ball. That ball was in his glove until he hit the wall. Yeah, that was a, that was a tremendous play. That would have been some. That would have been one of the great catches of the decade. Uh, he already <laughs> made a great play in center field a couple of weeks ago, and this yeah. one would have trumped that one for sure. Yeah. No doubt. I mean, the, so, the jump he got, the ground he covered to get there. Oh man, they just showed it again. Face for full speed, face first. And it's not even like he he didn't see the wall. I think he he knew where he oh. was. He just he ran he was ran, ran out of room. Dear God. Oh man. Oh, I tell you, he had this he, ball. I don't have, I don't have a monitor on. Did he hit it oh. hard enough where he scared all the rats and raccoons out of the building? <laughs> <laughs> he might, they're not going to be coming back. Let's let's say, let's say this, Bruce. He hit the wall so hard, McNeil and Lindor are going to be best friends from here on out. Let's <laughs> let's put it that way. But now they're reviewing something. You're yourself fortunate when you get to be May and Robbie's age. We hit that wall every day, pal. <laughs> every day. I think, which is which is why ultimately this podcast is going to come to an unceremonious end when Rob starts babbling his words pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Not what ready for re- that yet. What are they reviewing? As long as you here? keep that slow. They're reviewing Rob, a catch. I think slur. they're reviewing a catch. They're reviewing the catch, but it was no catch. No, it's definitely not a catch. Did he have both feet in bounds? I don't have a monitor. But it, both, it was, both feet in bounds. He didn't survive the ground. He didn't Bruce, light a campfire. Eat some. You got to see how hard he hit it. I mean, watching it on slow motion doesn't do it justice. When you watched it live, I mean, you just seen it happening. I, I, it was just. I mean, I give him credit. He never even looked at that. He just ran. He was going all ball. That was it. He was going all ball. Uh, I'm sure I'm going to get plenty of looks at it. And oh, I'm unfortunately, in an area where I don't. Uh, you you got to get the. You got to get the. You got to get the live look. Yeah, one other thing I wanted to, to kind of uh, you know uh, touch on before we yeah uh, bid adieu here. The NFL schedule is going to be released tomorrow and. and and we're going to know tomorrow morning, forget about the release show at eight o'clock at night, because I don't know if you guys have read, but good morning, America, Fox news, uh, the CBS morning show, they're all releasing their week one slates of NFL games on their newscast tomorrow morning, which totally kills the release shows, but be that as it may, but here is my wish as the most die hard of die hard giant fans. We don't open up in Dallas. <laughs> I, I no. I want a nice, soft Sunday, one p.m. Eastern kickoff time. I don't want Dallas. I don't want Philadelphia. I don't want Washington. I don't know who else. I don't have the schedule in front of me right now. I want a nice. I, I want to ease my way into the season. I don't want some sort of apocalyptic opposition national tv prime time i don't need that i want well, to ease well, my way into this season. twitter had released that they were saying the the opening sunday night game was actually the bears and the rams well the chicago and la markets that's fine i'll buy that they're gonna put the cowboys because of prescott's return somewhere in national tv i don't think it'll be the thursday game well, Thursday game's got to be Buccaneers. You don't think it's going to be Cowboys Buccaneers? Yeah, a lot of people have speculated that. Of it, there's also been a lot of talk about the Bills and the Bucks. Um, and again, the Cowboys are going to be prime time somewhere, which has me believing that ultimately it's going to be Giants and Cowboys again. But uh, no, I don't think it's going to be that Thursday. I don't think they're going to do Dallas Tampa Bay in the in the opener. 
Be I don't know that I don't know that you know Bills Tampa Bay isn't exactly a sexy sexy matchup either of course but that seems to be the leader in the clubhouse I just again the opening Sunday I don't I want a one o'clock game uh, I'm not saying it has to be against an also ran because the Giants need to take a quantum leap forward to be considered and also ran themselves but I don't want it to be national TV Dallas Cowboys Sunday night. Well, one thing I want to get your guys' opinion on, and I don't know if this is confirmed because we've seen schedule leaks. We'll, we, we won't know definitively until tomorrow whether or not they're true or not. But from what I've seen in these schedule leaks, with the additional week being added onto the season, week 18 for the 17th game, mm-hmm. uh, they have the teams playing a random opponent, whether it be the additional matchup that doesn't line up with the original schedule format. They have them playing that team in week 18. So like, for instance, they had the Steelers playing the Seattle Seahawks in week 18. And I'm curious to see how you guys feel about that because I've never liked the final week being division only games. I get that you're going to have your Sunday night game that decides a divisional crown, but for the most part, you have 13 or 14 meaningless games and two games that actually mean something. If you randomize the opponents in that final week of the season, you would probably draw a much larger crowd to a multitude of games on the final week. That's just my know. personal opinion a, on it. Is there a greater likelihood because you do, you know, interdivision, uh, you know, or games outside your division? Is there a greater likelihood that you're going to generate more meaningful games in that final week? I'm not so sure. That I don't mind stacking up division games in the finale. I think that's a I think that's a roll of the dice worth taking because when you get those meaningful week 17s, you know, storied rival against storied rival, it's something special. I, I just assume they kept it that way. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, we won't know for sure until tomorrow, but I, I, I've never, I'm not that I'm the, not that I'm the, uh, totally against it, but I just haven't been a huge, a huge fan of it. And I just feel for selfish purposes, 1 p.m. in the afternoon, you're watching a bunch of games that are meaningless between teams that are already out of it. Who's playing? Who's not playing their starters? Who's playing their third string? You know, and I get you're going to get that last week of the season for teams that are clinched. But I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like if you randomize the opponents, you might get some more interesting games throughout the course of the day instead of just your one primetime Sunday night game that means something. Mm hmm. Well, look, but, I mean, but like you said, Bruce, it's a it's it is a roll of the dice. It's going to be interesting to see what sort of primetime games the Giants get. I wonder how they're going to value this giant team this year coming in. I'll tell you what, as a giant fan, and I've said this to you guys before, Giants were gifted a meaningful win or go home intra division game week 17 last year at, at five at five and 10 going in. They had no right to be in that kind of position. But for that team, that coach, and that quarterback to have that kind of experience against that particular opposition, that was an absolute gift for the Giants last year, that game against the Cowboys in the finale. Yeah. And they respond. One one thing I can confirm about the schedule, and I'm not sure if you guys saw this, uh, they are doing away with the Monday night doubleheader in week one. There will only be one Monday night game. Yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm barely awake for that for that. Uh, 10 o'clock start that Denver Oakland game, whatever they, they, they've, they've been pushing the last couple of years. And this is why we were talking about the home run, not being a recipe for a success. Baltimore Orioles just stack on a second run with a two out squeeze bunt from Freddie Galvis to get the second run home. 
Bunt single, yeah. People yeah. bunt in baseball still? Yeah, it was a bunt. We actually had a bunt. That's okay. The uh, that Orioles bullpen still has to somehow find a way to uh, finagle nine outs against that lineup. Let's see. Long way to go, boys. So listen, we did four sports, multiple stories per sport, multiple teams per sport. I would say we probably covered the most material in this episode than I think we ever have. If I'm being quite honest with you, I mean, we Rob, no stone unturned. And, like, we pushed, and we pushed Rob into retirement, which is the real cherry on the side. <laughs> that's, that's perhaps the biggest leap we've made in, in, throughout the course of this podcast. But, Rob, I mean, can you remember an episode where we covered as much? I mean, like draft night, we do a, a load of things. We talk about a bunch, but it's all draft related. I mean, tonight we bounced around from topic to topic. Yeah, this is and, beautiful. And this is why we said we had Brucey on from the get-go. Hey, listen, guys, this is what your listeners have grown accustomed to, this kind of sophistication on the Four Score podcast. I don't know why you're the slightest bit amused by this, Andrew. Your <laughs> listenership over these now 59 episodes have grown to demand this kind of coverage. Well, now, I, it's, I, now it's a pundit. Uh, uh, now it's... You know, upon the two of you to make sure you deliver this week in and week out. I'm not so much amused by it. I, I think I'm kind of just patting us on the back here, patting myself on the back and saying, "Good job, Andrew. Good, Attaboy. good job. We're very proud of you. Got and a little bit of a chip on the shoulder tonight. It's past 9:30 Eastern. Usually, a kid your age is well, you know, sleep by now. Listen, this is milk and cookies and in bed. Bruce, milk and cookies and in that's bed. where I have a bone to pick. Now, this is the third time you've appeared on the podcast, and I've broken curfew all three times. No, that's okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm more than happy to continue to write those uh, permission slips for you. <laughs> it's so, worth it. So that'll do it for episode 59. Like we said, we covered a ton of stuff. Appreciate everyone who's listening, coming along for the ride. Huge thank you to Bruce for coming on for the entirety of the podcast. Looking forward to keeping him on board as a regular. Uh, and Bruce, I mean, you keep coming with the storylines. and We'll just keep having you on as much as you like. Boys, it's a blast. These these many hours, they fly by. It literally feels like a handful of minutes. That was a lot of fun, boys. Yeah. Good episode. For sure. So housekeeping things, as always, to close out the podcast. You can follow me on my personal Twitter account, Andrew May underscore 21. You can follow me on Instagram, A underscore May 21. That is where I post links to the podcast. We also have the podcast of... Uh, the Twitter page of the podcast, I should say, at Four Score the Pod on Twitter. You can follow Rob on his personal Twitter page at robog 6 That's R O B B O G six. You want to email us fan questions? Send them in fourscorethepodcast at gmail.com. We also have our listeners' voicemail hotline, which we didn't really get into it tonight. And uh, it's a new addition to the show. We broke it out last week. People who called in were thrilled to hear themselves on the show. And I think that's going to be a welcome addition moving forward. So if you want to leave a voicemail to the listeners hotline, 917-426-5779. Again, that's 917-426-5779. You saw how many things we covered tonight. You saw how many topics we bounced around from. So don't feel shy of leaving in a voicemail about any topic of your choice. You leave a voicemail, we will get to it. You leave an email with a fan question, a fan comment, we will get to it. We promise. So continue to send them in. Huge thank you to Bruce for coming on again. Uh, subscribe to the podcast, available on all streaming platforms tomorrow. Follow us on Twitter. Keep in touch with us. We want to know what our fans are thinking at all times. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. For Rob Fay and Bruce Shine, I'm Andrew May. We will see you guys next time. <laughs>